0: is Sam, of historian Explaining. a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and other platforms, and if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, the link is in the description. So as promised, I want to make a follow-up, second part discussion of the myth of the Holy Grail. In the first part, I discussed the emergence and flourishing of literature about the grail and the quest for the holy grail right in the middle of the high middle ages from the late 1100s through about the 1230s. And now I want to discuss what happened to that story and the image of the grail. How has that myth evolved and taken on different forms through time down to today? And what are the different ways that scholars and lay commentators have tried to uncover and interpret the hidden meaning of the Holy Grail. So to begin more or less where we left off, after this flowering of Grail literature in French and German, in the mid-1200s, from about 1240 onwards, a handful of romances appeared that again took up The theme or subject of the Holy Grail in some way, but usually in a much more minor sort of background role. It becomes progressively less important. For instance, there was the French romance called Romance of the Grail, and then also the Prose Tristan, a long retelling of the Tristan and Isolde story. And the Grail appears in both of those romances from the mid-1200s, but only really as just a framing device even in the romance of the grail which one would think would center on that quest it really is just a kind of framing device for the plot line it's not really a major subject and similarly in german other german authors took up and elaborated the themes begun by wolfram von eschenbach in his parts of all But the grail was actually progressively downplayed. And for instance, the German romance, The Crown, presents the grail as a desirable object, the object of a journey, but it has no religious content. Its sort of sacred power is being diminished. And one could speculate that maybe the theme of the Grail was being exhausted, or maybe the conditions, the issues, the questions in people's mind that made the Grail so appealing in the early 1200s were now fading out by the end of the 1200s. Now, a continuing theme that is sounded over and over again in all of these romances through the 13th century is the fate of the Grail. It is in some way hidden or removed to a place of inaccessibility. And there are various explanations of exactly what becomes of the Grail. All of the early romances that I discussed last time say that the holy objects, the Grail and the Lance, and sometimes other associated objects as well, either disappeared or were taken into deeper seclusion. And so the concealment around them only grows thicker. They become more and more inaccessible. However, in the mid-1200s, things start to become more specific. Rather than saying they ascended to heaven or a hand came down and picked them up and lifted them into the heavens and presumably they are no longer on earth at all, In the mid-1200s, some stories and romances start to say that the sacred objects were taken away to a specific place, and this place is usually imaginary. And a big example is the German romance Titerell, which was another continuation and elaboration on Eschenbach's parts of all. The Titerell says that after the achievement of the grail, nonetheless an evil time, a period of evil and suffering ensued, which overtook the kingdom. And so the grail was taken away to the kingdom of Prester John, which you may have heard of before. It was a story that was just emerging in European lore at this time. The idea that there was a faraway kingdom to the east beyond Jerusalem that was ruled by a Christian king. And Europeans hoped that they might be able to make an alliance with this legendary, maybe imaginary Christian monarch in the distant east against the Saracens or the Muslim powers. So this idea emerges in the mid-1200s that the grail did not ascend to a heavenly realm. It was taken away to this distant land of Prester John. And then other later versions provide different explanations and suggest that the Grail might actually not be so totally inaccessible. And in the early 1400s, a Welsh writer composed a Welsh version of the tale of Percival and the Grail. And according to this version, Sir Gawain did see the Grail again after its putative disappearance. At least that is what I read in one secondary book by Arthur Edward Waite. I have not been able to confirm that directly. It's very difficult to find any kind of translation or explanation of the Welsh version of the Grail quest. But that's what Waite claims. And if it's true, then that incident might reflect Welsh folklore or it might reflect a new invention. But I think it marks out this growing idea that develops more and more through the late Middle Ages, that the grail is actually still on earth and may still be attainable. So that sort of stark ending that appeared in the earlier romances now appears more ambiguous and more open. And the question then remains, if it is still somehow possible to encounter and attain the grail, how, how can this be done and where, and in what form would the grail then be encountered? So this trend towards a more open-ended, more ambiguous conclusion to the story and the possibility that the grail might still be on earth, this then advances most dramatically after about 1275 and through the late Middle Ages, mainly in Central Europe. So in the German-speaking countries, the grail comes up in stories, in poems, in references to ceremonies and events. But it is portrayed more and more as an object of a quest, but with no religious content. It loses this connection to the Eucharist and to Jesus Christ. And instead, it comes to be identified with a place. So remember, as I said, in Titurel, we're told that the Grail is removed to a faraway land, a legendary land of Prester John. Well, after that, more and more people start to merge together the idea of the grail itself and the idea of an imaginary, paradisal place somewhere on earth. And it takes on more of an earthly and carnal and sensual importance. So the grail becomes a metonym for some sort of paradisal realm of pleasure, sort of like the legendary Elysian Fields. And a phrase emerges in German, the idea that a fallen hero or fighter, quote, went to the grail. So it's some sort of paradisal, partly afterlife realm. And there are more and more references to an earthly paradise called the grail. And another new usage, a specific usage, emerges as well, where the word grail was used for festivals and other festive events that offer great pleasures and delights. For example, the probably the earliest instance is in the Chronicle of Magdeburg, a city in Germany, which says that a grail festival was held in the year 1281. It involved a nightly tournament and a lady who chose the winner of the tournament, who was called, quote, Dame Fay. So there's this association with uh, magic, the world of the fairies. In the 1400s, Grail increasingly was used to refer to romantic or sexual love or to a lover. And for instance, there's a late medieval German minstrel song which is in the voice of a lady, and this lady calls her lover, quote, my highest grail. And these different usages for a place, an event, a lover are more and more merged. And grail is used to refer to a dance or a celebration with strong sexual overtones. And then finally, it seems in the 1500s, the grail came to be identified with Venusberg, the legendary mountain of Venus, which in, it seems, classical and medieval mythology was understood to be a mountain enclosing a chamber where there are great pleasures and sensual indulgence. So this remote legendary mountain, the realm of feasting, celebration, sexual indulgence, and this evolution of the term grail to mean something remarkably different from what we see in the high medieval romances. Uh, The scholar Arthur Edward Waite, who I'll talk about more later, he calls this the desecration of the grail myth, right? So he puts a heavy value judgment on it. I would say that you could in a more value-neutral way, simply say it's a secularization of the myth of the grail. And although it is dramatically different, and it seems to have lost all of its Christian connections, nonetheless, we should note that even in those early stories of the grail from the 11 and 1200s, the grail is associated with feasting, with delicious food, and it is overlaid with what I would say is very heavy sexual symbolism. So it's not as if those themes of the pleasure of food and the pleasure of sex, or at least the the importance of sex, are totally alien to the earlier story of the grail. It's just that the story and the meaning of the grail went in this very different direction, especially in Central Europe and the Holy Roman Empire. So meanwhile, in the French and English-speaking worlds, it seems that the grail more and more faded into the background and maybe was seen as a kind of sterile, exhausted, old-fashioned symbol. And it, in the 1300s and most of the 1400s, it really doesn't factor in at all. In the great English-language romance of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I've discussed before, the grail does not factor in at all. But it does reappear. It takes back its very important role again in the sort of last great work of Arthurian literature of the Middle Ages, which is Thomas Mallory's Les Mort d'Arthur, which the Englishman Mallory wrote probably while in prison in the 1470s and then not long after was published by William Caxton when he set up the first printing press in England. And in Les Mort d'Arthur, the Grail... In some ways, it factors in as an important goal and quest of the Knights of the Round Table, much as it did in the Vulgate cycle. And Le Morte d'Arthur can be seen as basically an English prose retelling of the Vulgate cycle. But the mood is different. The thrust, you could say, is different in Le Morte d'Arthur. The Grail is not seen as the ultimate fulfillment of the whole mythos, but rather as part of the downfall. Of Arthur's Court and the Round Table. And I've read before when I discussed the Arthur legends how the scene where the knights resolve to set off for the Holy Grail is very mournful in a lot of ways. Arthur is grief-stricken and he's afraid that the Round Table is going to break up. So he has this prophetic foresight that the quest for the Holy Grail will be kind of the last great undertaking of Camelot and the Round Table. And in this way, you could see the whole process as foreordained, that the grail quest and the achievement of the grail somehow lead then naturally into the breakup and destruction of Camelot. And so there's a kind of fatalism, and Le Morte d'Artour really emphasizes the fleeting nature of utopia. All of that, furthermore, can be seen as, over- as foreshadowed in a very pithy way in the scene where the messenger, the ugly woman, who is some sort of prophetic messenger, appears to Percival and Gawain and tells them, quote, ye seek that ye will not find. So it's a sort of doomed expedition from the beginning. And this creates whole new different associations with the grail. It reemphasizes the unattainability. This is something that you will seek, but you will not really attain. And the I think the theme then and the message is about the danger of striving for perfection, right? That there's something perverse about the fact that Camelot, as wonderful as it was, was not enough and that they had to undermine their own utopia by striving after something otherworldly. So Les Morts d'Arthur has cast a very long shadow in how people understand the Arthur mythology and the Holy Grail in particular because as I said it was the last great summation of the medieval understanding of King Arthur and Camelot and it preceded then a very long drought where the theme of Arthur, Camelot, and the Holy Grail was neglected and fell out of at least out of high art and literature and So we have to be somewhat speculative and conjecture about what exactly happened in this gap of time following after Les Morts d'Arthur. And I would conjecture that the, the book contributed to a transformation of the myth such that it took on a very different meaning by the time it was, even before it was revived by modern people hundreds of years later. And these different currents of thought and changing meanings of the grail, I think, coalesced. On the one hand, this central European idea that the appeal of the grail is essentially earthly and carnal, not spiritual. And on the other hand, the sense that the quest is fundamentally tragic, and that it does not crown or complete the perfect worldly order, but rather destroys it. And I think that these different streams of thought, which percolated and circulated in popular consciousness and in folklore, I think that these different strands have combined together and effected then a modern transformation in thought about the Grail, even before I think it reemerged in literature. So it changes to a chalice. it's in, in the modern understanding, it's now thought of as a chalice from which one drinks and which makes that person immortal. And in this way, the, the modern grail becomes very much like the fountain of youth or to the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life. And hence, in some, and I'll, I'll go back to this again and repeat this later, I think that the grail myth as it re-emerges in modern times, it has been Faustianized. So the theme has been changed to be very much like this uh, deep and powerful modern myth of Faust, the one who makes a bargain and gives away his soul in order to have earthly power and knowledge. And so the tale becomes instead about temptation, the danger and allure of power and knowledge, And this interpretation, to be fair, is not totally without a basis in the medieval legend. We do see moments of great danger, the danger of approaching the grail, the lure of the hidden knowledge, the desire to understand the meanings and the secret words. Although again, on the other hand, if you look at the earliest version, in Chrétien de Troyes telling, the problem with the hero is that he's not curious enough, (laughs) he doesn't ask enough questions. So over the course of the evolution of the myth up to modern times, I think you can see the emphasis shift so that the meaning becomes almost the reverse of what it had been in the early versions of the story. The grail is no longer a gateway to spiritual elevation, rather it is a means of bodily elevation, of empowering and preserving and immortalizing the body. And so I think the modern grail myth, and I'll talk about the specific instances and specific grail stories that we see in literature and in movies and television, the modern grail has become a parable for modern anxieties about the danger of power and knowledge. And it's bound up, I think, with our anxieties and our demons about technology, about science, about empire, about this seemingly unlimited, unbounded growth of power and knowledge in the modern world. But when, where, and how did the Grail story transform? It's hard to say, and again, I would speculate that this transformation largely happened in popular consciousness and folklore that we can't really trace until it shows up again in high literature and in print hundreds of years later. So there's a period of oblivion, sort of centuries of oblivion, where we know almost nothing about what was said about the grail. Now, to back up, Mallory's book, as I said, was published in the late 1400s. It was one of the earliest books published in English, in the first printing press in England. And from that point up to about 1530, there is some degree, it seems, of popularity where grail legends now can be printed and sold to a literate market. It maybe was not as big and popular as certain key texts like the Bible or certain classics, but there was some degree, uh, Mallory's version, Mallory's edition of Le Morte d'Arthur was printed several more times and did circulate in England. It seems it was reasonably popular among readers and also among audiences who would hear it read out loud. There also were a few French romances and Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parts of All which were printed several times as sort of luxury collector's items for wealthy book collectors in France and Germany. And again, that pattern seems to have held up till about 1530. But after that point, the whole Arthur cycle really vanishes from high art and literature. The Arthurian mythology is totally rejected, firstly, by Renaissance humanists, who consider it spurious pseudo-history and full of, you know, magic and all of these sort of disreputable subjects. It also is rejected by both Protestant and Catholic reformers. So the Protestant Reformation sees the Holy Grail as representing idolatry, as investing magical power into the Eucharist, and all of these kinds of theologically suspect things. They de-emphasize the entire cult of holy relics from right from the ground up, of which the Holy Grail is sort of the most dramatic exaggeration. Also, Catholic reformers try to pare down and refocus worship on what they consider to be sound doctrine and true sacraments of the church. And so the, the Catholic Church had always held the Holy Grail legends at arm's length, and it really is even more uh, rejected as illegitimate in the Catholic Reformation. It's seen as a kind of dangerous apocrypha. And so insofar as the Grail continued to be spoken of at all, it was as an object of folklore probably uh, stories, rhymes, songs circulated among the largely illiterate public. And little can be known about what was said about the Arthur mythology in general or whether there was any innovation or evolution in how people presented the Arthur mythos. And that basically is the situation right up into the 1700s when both high literature and popular literature are exploring different themes and the, the high medieval romances are really out of the picture. But of course things start to change. As I've said before in other lectures, the Arthur mythology starts to be collected, edited, examined by scholars, and reprinted beginning in the late 1700s. And there are a number of reasons. One is that increasingly there are cadres of scholars who see these romances as part of national mythology and folklore, something to be claimed and celebrated as part of a national heritage, whether French or German or British. And so the Arthur cycle starts to be edited and republished in the late 1700s, and then it starts to be adapted now and elaborated in new forms after about 1800. And the main vehicle through which audiences were Reintroduced to the Arthur mythology was again Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. And Le Morte d'Arthur was republished in several new editions, mainly in Britain after 1800. And these editions were largely aimed at children. So, publishers at that time, readers, editors could see Le Morte d'Arthur as a set of sort of moralized tales for youth. Comparable, you could say, to Aesop's fables. Whereas you might aim Aesop's fables at, you know, primary school children. Maybe Les Morts d'Artur could be more for secondary school, especially young men. And so it was slotted into the new sort of burgeoning genre of children's or youth's literature, along with other similar cycles of folklore like Robin Hood. Right, they're following largely the same trajectory here. But the Grail quest was. De emphasized or removed entirely. So, early 19th century moralists evidently were discomfited and didn't know what to do with the quest for the Holy Grail. They saw it as too strange, too mystical, too overlaid with sexual symbolism and overtones, and possibly conveying some sort of religious heterodoxy. So, whereas, for instance, Merlin comes much more quickly and is embraced in the new literature for youth in the early 1800s, the Holy Grail is kept out and suppressed. And many of these editions of Les Mortes d'Arthur just cut out the whole section on the Grail quest entirely. They expurgated the whole subject. So why would that be that the grail would be seen as so dangerous and too dangerous to print, whereas, you know, Merlin, a wizard and prophet, is acceptable? Well, Merlin is so fantastical and so far outside of the mainstream religious beliefs of the 19th century that he could be sort of slotted in to the world of children's tales, right? It's okay to tell children about magic. But the Grail obviously is different. The Grail is religious and theological. It brings up questions about the nature of the resurrection, the operation of grace, and as I said, it has themes of sex and violence as well. The death of Galahad at the climax of the Vulgate cycle could be seen as a kind of suicide, right? So, whereas Merlin's magic can be infantilized, you know, and cast as just stories for the kinder, as one would say in Yiddish. The Grail is undeniably an adult story, and it raises difficult questions of how to interpret and represent it. And the Grail story basically, it seems, was left out of the new romantic literature that was growing in the early 1800s. But the main writer who broke through this barrier and brought the Grail quest into 19th century literature and into the heart of high, well, (laughs) one could say highly honored and praised literature of the 19th century was Alfred Lord Tennyson. So Tennyson was the first one to begin to adapt the Holy Grail story for an ostensibly serious reading audience. And this process began in 1834. And that's an important date because at that point, Tennyson was still in recovery, he was still in mourning and just beginning to recover from grief over the death of his close friend Arthur Hallam, who had been his university classmate. And he was very, you know, devastated by this loss of of his friend from, from youth, and they were still young, they were still in their 20s when Arthur Hallam died. And he wrote a famous poem memorializing him, which contains the famous line, it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And it seems that when he was just starting to come out of mourning from the death of Arthur Hallam, that is when Tennyson wrote a narrative poem called Sir Galahad, describing the adventures of the knight Galahad seeking the Holy Grail. Right, And he, of course, is the the Grail hero in the Vulgate Cycle. And the poem includes Galahad's sort of fleeting vision, what you could see as a kind of mystical vision of the grail upon an altar table guarded by three angels. And this then becomes the iconic Victorian depiction of the Holy Grail, right? It starts from early in Tennyson's career, Tennyson goes on to become the Poet Laureate of Britain through most of Victoria's reign, he's sort of the defining literary vision of good Victorian respectable literature. And this poem on the theme of Sir Galahad was published a few years later in Tennyson's early collection in 1842, and that collection is what really vaults him into stardom, and he became poet laureate in 1850. Then the Galahad material from that early poem was then reworked and reincorporated into a longer narrative poem describing the quest for the Holy Grail. And that longer poem on the Grail forms one of the elements of the 12-part series called Idols of the King. So this is entire, an entire Arthur cycle, which became sort of the great crowning project of Tennyson's career at the height of his powers. And one could speculate, again, I have many conjectures here, but one could speculate that he might have been partly inspired to undertake this whole Arthurian project by the name of his late friend, Arthur Hallam. So he publishes this 12-part series, Idols of the King, in various parts over several decades, and the seventh part of the 12-part series is called The Holy Grail, and it's printed in 1868. And compared to earlier tellings of The Grail Quest, even compared to Le Morte d'Artour, it is more somber, it makes it very clear that The Grail Quest is the beginning of the downfall of Camelot right? And it's put in at number seven, right? So it's the first section of the second half of the cycle, and it clearly is understood to be sort of the, the beginning of the undoing of Arthur's world. And the telling in this version begins when Galahad takes the siege perilous. And instead of this being a triumphant moment trumpeted by music and light, like in the Vulgate cycle, in Tennyson's version, Galahad sneaks into the Hall of Camelot at night, and surreptitiously sits in the Siege Perilous. And that is what then causes the Grail to appear. And all through Tennyson's poems, the Grail keeps appearing as a sort of phantasm at night. And Percival witnesses this. He sees that Galahad has taken the Siege Perilous, and Percival vows to follow and help Galahad to seek the Grail. Then the quest after the grail is simplified and compressed, right? And the goal in Tennyson's version is just to see the grail. So rather than having this esoteric overtone where one has to understand the nature of the grail in order to attain it, in Tennyson's version the goal is just to see it. The, The thing in itself is a kind of beatific vision, a vision of perfection. And this retelling, then, is very in line, I think, with early Victorian spiritualism and interest in magic and dreams and visions. And that is sort of the overall mood and texture of this version. And in this period, in the 1850s and 60s, there was not yet such a great interest among the Victorian middle class in esotericism, this obsession with secret codes, would come in later in the later Victorian age and you see it in places like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Theosophical Society. Well, Tennyson's Holy Grail is just before that and it doesn't really discuss the idea of a hidden symbolic meaning. It's just about the beauty, the perfection of the grail itself. There's also no reference in the poem to the Eucharist or the Passion of Christ. And Presumably, Tennyson was affected here by the same sort of inhibition as those earlier publishers of Les Mortes d'Artour, that there was just too much theological baggage connected to the early stories of the Grail, and Tennyson just avoids bringing it up at all. The hero Galahad is purified, so whereas he is a sort of imperfect knight going out on adventures in his 1834 poem, And in in a lot of ways, his personality is more like Percival. In the Idols of the King, Galahad is pure and chaste and serene, and he alone gets to see the Grail up close, and he ultimately sails away in a sort of starry heavenly ship with the Grail leading him. So he's given this ultimate fate that in the early stories is sometimes assigned to Percival, just sort of boarding a ship and going off to some unknown Elysian realm. Well, in, in Tennyson's retelling, it's Galahad who gets that fate, and he does so in communion with the Grail. The secondary hero, Percival, only beholds it from afar. So he gets a sort of partial and imperfect attainment of the Grail. And there's this running theme through the poem, as as in a lot of Tennyson's work, there's this theme of uncertainty, of the blurring of dreams and reality there are many images of veiling cloth or haze or the darkness of night veiling one's sight and this theme then is echoed further in the way the poem is constructed where we see the events filtered reality filtered through the eyes of the characters right we only get these visions second or third hand filtered through the perceptions of the characters And probably the most dramatic moment of that in Idols of the King is in Lancelot's description of his vision of the Grail. So, you know, Lancelot is a very imperfect hero, so he at best gets a distant encounter with the Grail. And Lancelot at one point has a dream, and then he reports to the Knights of the Round Table about his dream, where he says that he was ascending a staircase, and he reaches a doorway at the top of the staircase, and he reports, quote, Then in my madness I assayed the door. It gave, and through a stormy glare, a heat as from a seven times heated furnace, I blasted and burnt and blinded as I was with such a fierceness that I swooned away yet methought I saw the holy grail, all palled in crimson samite, and around great angels, awful shapes, and wings, and eyes. And but for all my madness, and my sin, and then my swooning, I had sworn I saw that which I saw. But what I saw was veiled and covered, and this quest was not for me. So these sort of themes and images from Tennyson, of the angels, the bright glowing fire, and the crimson cloth, the cloth laid over and covering the grail, all of these in some ways have some precedent in the medieval romances, but they're assembled here together in Tennyson in this form that then becomes the standard perception, the standard image of the grail quest for all the Victorians, for the writers and the visual artists. And the theme, again, is on the inaccessibility of perfection, the role of tragic destiny. And the grail in this view is not the fulfillment of Camelot, but it's undoing. So there's a a tension, a conflict between the earthly paradise and this heavenly perfection. And the spiritual fulfillment that is achieved is purely individual, not collective. Right? Camelot does not get to enjoy the attainment of the grail, only the worthiest individual, which is Galahad. So this way of thinking about the grail is reflected in other Victorian writers and artists around the same time, both before and after the publication of the Holy Grail in 1868. And I've mentioned before, William Morris also writes about Galahad. And Galahad is the subject of a Christmas mystery, which was a short verse play that William Morris published in 1858. And that is modeled, it gets some of its material, of course, from the Grail romances, but it's modeled on medieval short dramas, sort of mystery and morality plays. And in this version, William Morris, again, rehumanizes Galahad. Galahad is imperfect and struggling and in a lot of ways his sort of foibles and his, his the ups and downs of his quest are more like Percival in the medieval romances. But even more importantly this Victorian version of the grail quest carries over into visual art and you see Dante Gabriel Rossetti and artists like him presenting depictions of the grail adventures but especially as visions the grail often appears floating, uh, you know, suspended in air. It's phantasmic. Uh, and Edward Burne Jones probably presents the most iconic and definitive image of the whole Holy Grail legend. And there's this extremely familiar image taken from a tapestry by Edward Burne Jones, where we see Galahad approaching a chapel in the forest with Percival behind. And within the chapel, We see in this sort of soft, you know, glowing light an altar table and the grail watched over by three female angels. And this image has been reproduced so many times. It's probably one of the most viewed works of art of the 19th century. And I have next to me right now in this room, I have a stack of three different books that examine the grail from different perspectives, but all of them have that same image on the cover. It's become almost inseparable. And I personally wanted to avoid (laughs) simply repeating this cliche. So for the thumbnail image of this podcast, I used a different image, which is a mural painting by Edward Austin Abbey, which I was able to photograph myself because I went with a friend to the Boston Public Library. And this artist, Edward Austin Abbey, was mainly known for popular magazine and advertisement illustrations until he was commissioned to paint a series of murals in the Boston Public Library in the room where one orders and receives books. And so he painted a series depicting the cycle of Galahad's quest, as described in the Vulgate cycle and Les Morts d'Arthur. This could be seen as kind of playing on and echoing the theme of questing after knowledge and truth, right, as appropriate to a Room Where One Requests and Receives Books. And these murals, this cycle of murals, they're extremely rich and kind of phantasmagoric. They have gold enamel. And they combine this sort of realistic, sculptural, three-dimensional detail with fantastical material, which is maybe kind of the perfect expression of, of Victorian art. And the murals served to elevate himself from a sort of trade illustrator of magazines and ads, to a supposedly serious artist. and the last years of his life, he painted serious art for commissions in Britain and the U.S. And so this is the point that he painted these murals in the early 1890s as the library building the McKim building was being completed and it can be seen as sort of the apotheosis of the of the arthurian legends and specifically of the holy grail legend as a topic for serious art no longer something to be seen as weird or suspect or just embarrassing magical theme of folklore but as a subject for serious and moralizing art at the same time that an opera was being performed that was reserved only for a specific theater in Germany, and that I think also played the same sort of role of now proving that the Holy Grail myth was a fit subject for high art. And that, of course, is Parsifal by Richard Wagner. So Wagner, whereas whereas Tennyson and artists like Edward Byrne Jones kind of made the Grail myth respectable again in the English-speaking world. It was the composer Wagner who did the same in the German-speaking world. He elevated the Grail theme to high art, and he did so mainly through this opera Parsifal, which is loosely based on the German Grail romances. His main source was Wolfram von Eschenbach, but there are crucial differences too and aspects of the story that Wagner took from other sources. But Wagner worked on the libretto for Parsifal for almost 20 years before it was then finally staged at the Bayreuth Festival in Germany in 1882. So this was an event that was held annually in Germany as a vehicle for the works of Wagner and his kind of celebration of German myth and folklore. And Parsifal turned out to be his last work. It's a an opera with quasi-religious overtones, even if not necessarily connected to Christ's passion, as one sees in the Grail romances, the Middle Ages. But Wagner says that he said that this opera was not properly speaking an opera. He described it as a play for the purpose of consecrating the stage of the Bayreuth Festspielhaus, the main venue of the Bayreuth Festival. So it, it has a kind of sacramental quality in and of itself. A lot of the action of the opera revolves around the veiling and uncovering of the grail. And so this sense of mystery of something sacred and rarefied is heightened in the telling of the story. And the opera was embargoed. Wagner and his heirs forbade the opera to be staged anywhere else other than the Bayreuth Festspielhaus until 1903, when it was allowed to be performed at the Met in New York. And the climactic scene of Parsifal takes place in a grail hall, that was elaborately designed and depicted on the stage, patterned on the cathedral of Siena. So it has these great overtones of sanctity and of religious drama. And this can be seen as ironic because Wagner himself was skeptical of Christianity. And in the opera, the characters never refer explicitly to Christ, but only to the redeemer. And there is no uh, explicit connection of the grail to, to the details of the story of the Last Supper or the Passion or Resurrection of Christ. And so, in a way, you could see Parsifal possibly as part of an attempt by Wagner and his circle to put forward a sort of neo-pagan religion, a religion drawing on magic and mythology as an alternative to Christianity, or at least as an alternative to traditional Western Christianity. Parsifal also emphasizes the theme of chastity. This is what makes the grail hero worthy of attaining the grail, his overcoming of temptation in order to reach the divine. It happens also that this opera was the final straw that provoked the rupture between Wagner and Nietzsche. So Friedrich Nietzsche, the sort of iconoclastic philosopher of 19th century Germany, he had been an admirer and a friend of Wagner, but there were increasing tensions between them. And Nietzsche was increasingly concerned that Wagner was sort of promoting a new, restrictive, life-denying morality. And so at the beginning of his classic book on the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche said, quote, Parsifal is a work of perfidy, maybe kind of playing on that wordplay, Parsifal and perfidy. Parsifal is a work of perfidy, of vindictiveness, of a secret attempt to poison the presuppositions of life, a bad work. The preaching of chastity remains an incitement to anti-nature. I despise everyone who does not experience Parsifal as an attempted assassination of basic ethics. So again, Nietzsche with his characteristic subtlety here, he sees, he sees the opera as part of a kind of conspiratorial attempt to restrict and undermine life. But overall, the significance of Parsifal for the grail myth, you could say, is that it is a remoralizing of the tale, but in a simplified form. The grail is a reward to be attained through proper behavior. It is not a mystery to be solved. The hiddenness, the secrecy, the puzzle... Is no longer the issue. It's a reward to be attained and in this way it can be seen as transitional to the high modernist understanding of the grail. So the grail theme, like a lot of the Arthur mythos and like a lot of medieval legend folklore romance, it gets taken up and sort of cannibalized by modernism in the 20th century and possibly the the strongest association of course between modern literature and the Grail, is T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, the sort of long pastiche poem that Eliot composed in the aftermath of the First World War and the Spanish Flu, and that he reportedly composed largely while recovering from his own case of the Spanish Flu. So in The Wasteland, it's, it's hard to parse out exactly what the different passages are talking about. It's very cryptic and disjointed. There's no clear direct reference to the Holy Grail, but you can see invocations of the Fisher King. Of course, the wasteland is understood, widely understood as a reference to the suffering country of the Fisher King. And the poem overall can be seen as symbolic of psychological development, and particularly of trauma and recovery among people who had survived World War I and the Spanish flu, and it draws a lot on images of illness and infirmity, but it also spiritualizes them. It draws parallels between physical and spiritual infirmity or illness. And the poem is modernist, but it can also be seen as transitional, I think, as a kind of last gasp of Victorianism and a last gasp of this idea that esoteric and occultic secrets can order and organize modern knowledge the expanding world of modern knowledge and there is a deep primitivism and psychologism right where these myths are read as symbolic of kind of the inner workings of the psyche which can be exposed by uncovering the primitive and the the occult all of which in some way are associated together i think in this modernist mentality When drafts of the poem were circulated, a lot of people questioned (laughs) what were his sources for his symbolic understanding of the Holy Grail myth that he was trying to kind of commandeer and use as a commentary on modern times. And in response, Eliot actually added in a footnote to the poem, where he explicitly cites a book by the scholar Jesse L. Weston called From Ritual to Romance. And he sort of credits her with providing this understanding of the real meaning of the grail legend. And I think that Eliot's decision, the the fact that he felt he needed to cite this book by Jesse L. Weston shows a number of things. For one thing, it shows the integration of the grail story into a modernist ethos which is very Jungian and Jung influenced where symbols and stories are seen as concealing both revealing and at the same time concealing some hidden reality which is primitive and psychological and that I think underlays then all the sort of new modern quests for the meaning of the holy grail which I'll get to at the end It also shows, I think you could say, a kind of ossification or sclerosis, where kind of the Victorian way of rereading, redeploying, reinterpreting the Holy Grail had sort of ground to a halt. And there was a more kind of rigid understanding that had set in about the Holy Grail and the Arthur mythos, where it seems a lot of the audience that read The Wasteland failed to see the poem as a sort of creative and evolving interpretation of the story, and instead they demanded correctness and justification for why the grail should be viewed this way. And I think you can see a kind of increasing rigidity and staleness where people expect a a sort of single wrote correct representation of the medieval myth which as we saw in the last lecture was dynamic and complicated and evolving when it was composed but you know as a modernist you you will often tend to think no there's some sort of correct underlying meaning that we just have to uncover okay so whereas the wasteland is this kind of high point where the Grail legend is woven into modernism, I think you can also see it as a kind of ending point where the Victorian way of approaching the Holy Grail had sort of been pushed as far as it could. And after that point, after about 1930 or so, the Grail legend is taken up only very rarely and sporadically into 20th century pop culture and popular press literature. And the way it's approached splits apart. There are two different attitudes towards the Holy Grail that I think diverge and become dramatically opposed. One is a growing cynicism where the whole story is seen as ridiculous, and that is represented most clearly in film. And then secondly, a a new quest to find the real grail. So on the other hand, there's this attitude that takes the grail story completely seriously and even on some level literally, that there must be an actual object that is the true holy grail and that it needs to, it only needs to be located, not interpreted, but located. So the understanding of the grail takes these radically different directions. And to consider just the first one initially— there's the reduction of the grail into a trite cliché, which we see most of all in mass media. And for a long time, the grail is just not treated at all. It's not seen as interesting or vital in the way that, say, Robin Hood is in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And for example, the grail theme is left entirely out of the play and movie Camelot, which is really I think you could say the first attempt to retell and re-encapsulate the Arthur mythos in movie form. There is no mention of the Grail, and the undoing of Camelot is tied entirely to the personal conflicts among Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, and Mordred. Then of course, when does the Holy Grail appear in a popular, successful film? As you know, it's in Monty Python and the Holy Grail which is a very inventive, very funny, playful movie, which is a brilliant send-up of the sort of pompousness and self-seriousness of the Arthur mythos. And The Grail is right there in the title. It's clearly understood as a sort of organizing principle of the story and the plot. But ironically, while it's the first movie to take The Grail as central to the Arthur story, and possibly it's the, the most known image and association that people have with the Grail today. It is used as the ultimate MacGuffin. That is how the Grail is slotted in to this version of the story. It's a MacGuffin in the sense that it is an object that is essentially inert, as far as we know, and it just conveniently supplies a goal for the characters to strive for, but it is basically arbitrary, and it is ultimately unimportant the the real thrust of the story and the humor of the story are in the characters and their interactions and their adventures along the way the the grail just provides a sort of arrow of direction and this fact that the grail is merely a macguffin i think is put forward and foregrounded even in the early part of the film where it first appears So the Grail first shows up in a sort of vision in the sky just after Arthur and his knights have approached Camelot and then decided not to take possession of it so there's this whole early plot line where Arthur is just assembling knights to join him at the round table at Camelot and it's always said in this very reverential way they approach Camelot which is just seen as a castle on a hilltop they sing a song and then when the song is over they just turn aside and say on second thought let us not go to Camelot it is a silly place So this entire storyline aimed at this goal of creating the round table, the, the paradisal society of Camelot, is just sort of summarily abandoned. And then for maybe about 10 seconds, they have no goal. They have nowhere to go. They have nothing to do. And that's when the grail then appears in the sky. And this image of God tells them, this is your goal. You should, you shall seek the holy grail. So it's almost made explicit that the grail itself only matters As a sort of arbitrary target for them to pursue. And then the plot line is strung along this through line of seeking the Grail. You know, what is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. But it ultimately has no point. The quest is left unresolved. And that, again, I think is emphasized in the ending, in the way that Monty Python ends the movie, which I won't give away for those few people who have not viewed it. But the entire movie, I think, can be seen as a kind of existentialist reading of the whole Holy Grail quest. And you could say something similar, I think, about the sort of first high art, high concept film dealing with the Holy Grail, which came a few years later in 1978, which is Perceval Le Galois by Eric Romer. And this is a very unusual, odd film, which is good. I've watched more of it just recently. It's a good movie, but you have to sort of adjust your thinking. It's an intentionally stagey and theatrical movie. There is no naturalism to it. The performance style is stilted. There's a singing chorus that shows up on screen. The sets and the props are intentionally clearly artificial. There's no depth in the scene backgrounds. You could see the film as sort of an attempt to present... How the medieval composers and hearers of the Grail romances would have pictured the story, or how they would have staged it, right? If you if you think of a medieval theatrical troupe trying to put on the story of Percival and the Holy Grail, maybe this is what it would have looked like. I don't know that they're entirely fair or accurate. I think maybe they don't give the medieval writers enough credit for their imagination and for the naturalistic elements in the story, but it's a different way of making a film, and I think that choosing the theme of Percival and the Holy Grail is possibly a sort of statement that the grail, it represents perfection, unattainability, and that it exists in this kind of rarefied narrative realm that is self-consciously artificial, and and theatrical. So while there are aspects, I mean, I, again, I would say it's a good movie. It's interesting what it's trying to do. And the grail procession is depicted in the movie. And I would say it's depicted in a very beautiful and interesting way. It's not treated as just a, a joke. There is an, an intrigue and a mystery about it. But nonetheless, it's again sort of foregrounding the artificiality and ultimately the arbitrariness of this constructed plotline around this imaginary object. So again, I would say it, uh, as I said in my other lectures about the Arthur mythos, I think it reflects how the mythology of Arthur, while it was interesting and supplied interesting images and incidents, it had sort of reached a point of exhaustion where it could no longer be seen as vital or could no longer be seen as speaking to modern sensibilities in this sort of cynical and disillusioned era of the 1970s. Now, at the same time that I think you could say the Grail story was reaching this kind of dead end and becoming a sort of stale artifact or joke in the 1970s, at the same time, there was a totally different development happening in other media, which was the emergence of a new quest to attain the Grail. So while some people were examining the grail as this kind of dead artifact of the past, others were taking it more seriously than ever, arguably more seriously than the people who wrote the medieval romances. So a new quest emerges to identify and locate the grail and hence to possess it, but again, to do so by by finding it, not by understanding it. This new quest, like the popular culture references and depictions to the Grail, like, say, Tennyson's poem, this new quest does not treat the Grail as essentially an enigma, but rather as a literal object. It loses this suggestion of esoteric meaning and symbolism. It's taken as a literal object to be obtained basically in the manner of the antiquarian search for ancient sites like Troy. And in some ways, I think you could say this new quest for the Holy Grail is sort of the latest instantiation, the popularization of the antiquarian obsession of the 1700s and 1800s. So various candidates have been proposed, mainly around different countries of Europe, usually they have some kind of folkloric connection to the story of Christ and maybe to certain miracles, and so they're seen as sort of miraculous relics. So there have been several candidates put forward, mainly in Britain and some others in Spain and Italy. They're usually not too difficult to debunk and to demonstrate as not old enough to be the literal holy grail, However, the, the Grail, the real Grail was still sought after by the Nazis. That is true. The Nazi many Nazis were inspired by esotericism, hermeticism and probably specifically also by Wagner to see the Grail as something real and to to be striven after in the context of this kind of mythology of of Germanness and Aryanness. So the Nazi regime did actually employ antiquarians to go and search in southern France and the Pyrenees, among locations that because of some sort of rumor or reference or folklore, they thought could be the hiding place of the grail. And they embraced this growing sort of suspicion circulating among the middle-brow public, the suspicion that the Templars or the Cathars or both were somehow involved in guarding the Holy Grail. I'll talk about these things more later, but just in brief, there are some literary references in the early romances that provide some basis for suspecting that the Templars were connected to the legend of the Grail. The Cathars, there's really, there's just no reason at all to think that there's any relationship there, and in fact, theologically, they're miles apart. But Basically, people in the mid-20th century started stringing together these sort of associations of mystery, secrecy, lost secret societies, and just kind of putting them together in a blender and coming up with sort of madcap theories that the grail was hidden at Montségur in France or something like that. Now, scholars, when they have picked up these questions, these theories about the grail, They've generally just easily debunked them. However, there is a current argument about the supposed real Holy Grail that has been put forward in recent years by two scholars in Spain, and that I think one could say is the strongest theory that has yet been put forward, trying to connect an actual real object with the legend of the Grail. So to be totally fair and put all the cards on the table, I will briefly examine and evaluate this argument, which was put forward in a book called Kings of the Grail by the scholars Margarita Torres Sevilla and José Miguel Ortega del Rio, and published in 2015. So this book, Kings of the Grail, argues that the actual Holy Grail from the Last Supper is a carved stone wine cup, which is currently in the possession of the San Isidoro Museum, connected to the Collegiate Church of San Isidoro in León, Spain. Using documentation and clues, they trace this chalice that is called the Chalice of Doña Urraca in the possession of the San Isidoro Museum. They trace it back to a wine cup called the Lord's Cup or the Lord's Chalice, which was displayed in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem in both the Byzantine and Islamic eras, and they put forward various early references that different writers made to the existence of this cup, which was, it seems, displayed in a reliquary along with other relics in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in late antiquity and the Middle Ages. And just briefly, Around the year 400, a pilgrim's breviary, written as a sort of guidebook for pilgrims visiting Jerusalem, made mention of this so-called Lord's Cup being displayed together with other relics, including the reed and sponge that were supposedly used to feed water to Jesus Christ on the cross. Then, many decades later, in the year 570, an Italian pilgrim, reported seeing an onyx cup. So a cup carved out of the hard semi-precious stone onyx, which is basically just a, a very dark and lustrous form of agate. He reported seeing this onyx cup, which was called the Lord's Cup or Lord's Chalice. Then, several decades after that, in the year 625, an Armenian guidebook for pilgrims referred to the Lord's Cup as being golden or covered in gold. Obviously, might be the same cup. It is, again, described as Lord's Cup or Lord's Chalice, which Jesus used at the Last Supper, but now it's covered in gold. So maybe at some point someone covered it in gold as decoration or protection if it was being touched, for instance, by pilgrims. Just later in that century in the year 683, the Irish monk Adomnán wrote a description of the holy sites in Jerusalem, and he quoted from the testimony of a bishop named Arkolf, who described seeing the Lord's cup in Jerusalem and described it as a silver cup with handles. And this particular description, the idea that it was displayed in a special reliquary where it could be witnessed in Jerusalem and that it was silver with handles on either side. This description was then widely reproduced many times in medieval Europe, and it was quoted, for one thing, in the writings of the Venerable Bede, one of the most widely known and read writers of early medieval England. Then after that, in the 800s, there are several times where the Lord's Cup or Chalice, again, supposedly a relic of the Last Supper, was listed among the holy relics housed in the Holy Sepulchre. And this description also specifically says that the cup has two caretakers. So there are sort of custodians charged with protecting and displaying holy relics around Jerusalem, and there are reportedly two assigned to this Lord's Cup. So out of these several mentions from about, about the year 400 through the 800s, there are several repeating consistencies. It is a cup that is displayed, that is viewed by pilgrims, that is seen as sacred. It is explicitly linked to Christ and the Last Supper, and it is kept together with other relics, particularly the reed and the sponge that are considered to be the the implements by which Christ was fed while on the cross. There are also inconsistencies. For example, the location is different. Sometimes it's described as in different spots around the Holy Sepulchre. At least once it's described as being in a separate chapel in Jerusalem outside the sepulchre. It could have moved. Maybe for some reason as the church was was expanded, it moved around to different places. The material also changes. So the earliest description that names any material in the year 570 says that it is onyx, Again, a lustrous, semi-precious stone, usually black or dark gray, then it's described as gold, then as silver. And maybe this can be explained by the idea that it was given different protective or ornamental coverings. So in sum, we can't really be positive that this is the same cup being described each time in all of these references hundreds of years apart. But the belief is constant the belief that there was a drinking vessel of some sort used by Jesus at the Last Supper and that is still in Jerusalem and can be seen. That idea is consistent. Now, there are no more records that these scholars could find describing this copper chalice after the Fatimid takeover of Jerusalem in 969. So there's a big gap here in the records about this purported object. However, Torres and Ortega found a manuscript written in the early 1200s in Arabic, located in archives in Cairo, and this Arabic manuscript says a number of significant things. It says that the so-called Cup of the Messiah, that's how it's described in this document, the Cup of the Messiah was found in a small church east of Jerusalem, and it had been hidden there in a niche in a wall, and guarded by Greek Christians. So maybe following the Fatimid Islamic takeover of Jerusalem, Christians felt that they had to hide and guard Christian relics. And so that might explain why, according to this document, it was hidden away in a niche, in a wall, in a small church outside Jerusalem. The Fatimid government nonetheless found the cup and appropriated it. Then, several years later, at a time of famine, the Fatimid Caliphate, which ruled Egypt and Palestine, was suffering from from famine, and they received aid from a small principality in Spain, an Islamic principality called Dania, basically located in what we now know as Valencia, Spain. So, in the year 1055, the Fatimid government gave this cup as a diplomatic gift to the emir of Dania named Ali Iqbal, basically as a sort of return thank you gift for this crucial food aid that they had received. So it gets caught up in this continuing diplomatic exchange between the Fatimids in Egypt and Palestine and this small Islamic state in Spain. Ali Iqbal, the document has been found where Ali Iqbal writes a thank you to the caliph And I'll read just a little passage from this surviving document as these Spanish scholars translated it, where Ali Iqbal writes to the Fatimid Caliph and says, quote, among all the highly prized gifts sent in your proof of your generosity, the merits of one gift stand out above all others, the destiny of destinies, the cup brimming with mystery. And then he goes on to Expound upon the importance of this mysterious cup. And he says, quote, It calms the spirits and eases hardships. It is a tonic for tortured souls and a gift for sick bodies. Every land will benefit from its influence, and it will not only allow you to allay the ill fortunes afflicting your land, but it will also protect your borders, providing you with the most powerful of allies. So this second passage is very strange and confusing, and I haven't been able to exactly uh, puzzle out precisely what's going on here, because now Ali Iqbal switches apparently into speaking of this cup as if, it is, as if he is commending it to someone else. Whereas in the earlier reference to the mysterious cup, he seems to be saying, I am receiving it gratefully from you. So there seems to be a little contradiction here. I don't know if if this might be a problem in their argument, but clearly there are two passages here in this document by the emir Ali Iqbal, where he talks about a powerful wonder-working gift which has healing powers, including the power to heal and protect a country. Then it seems from clues from material clues found in the museum in Spain, it seems that shortly afterwards, maybe around the year 1058 or 1059, the state of Dania then gave a set of diplomatic gifts to King Ferdinand of León, who was the Christian ruler of a neighboring Christian state with which Dania was trying to work out peaceful coexistence. And this this cup was then given as part of that suite of diplomatic gifts from Dania to Léon. Furthermore, there is a letter surviving from the 1100s, so from several decades later, which seems as if it makes reference to the same cup. And this letter is from Egypt again, and it describes the life and activities of Saladin, the new ruler, the military ruler who had seized control, of Egypt and who was fighting back against the crusaders in Palestine and is famous for that reason. And this letter from the 1100s says that Saladin's daughter at one point was ill and Saladin used a shard of stone in order to heal her, a stone with some sort of healing powers. And this shard had been cut from a larger object, which they call a cup or a holy stone. And it furthermore says that this cup or holy stone had been located in Dania in Spain as of 100 years earlier. So the chronology can get confused here, right? But this later document from the 1100s claims that someone possessed this stone with healing powers, which originally was a shard cut from a cup that was located in Dania in Spain. So to sum up, to piece together these elements of the story as these scholars have assembled them, there is a stone cup regarded as holy and as having healing properties which traveled from Jerusalem to Dania in Spain and then to Leon and along the way it had a piece cut off of it and hence they identify this stone cup then with the chalice of Doña Uraca in Leon. So, this chalice is associated with Uraka, a very powerful princess who was the granddaughter of King Ferdinand, who was supposedly the recipient of this diplomatic gift from Dania. And Uraka herself oversaw the building of a set of vaults connected to the collegiate church of Leon in which to keep the treasures possessed by the royal family of Leon. And in these vaults is this chalice of Doña Urraca. And the bowl of the chalice clearly is fairly old. It is a footed, carved agate wine cup, basically matching the style of the Roman era. And it is set into a medieval jeweled gold mounting, which clearly was added on later. And it's held in the reliquary in the vault of the collegiate church of Leon, along with other gifts given to Leon from the Islamic states in Spain. And furthermore, this agate cup has a large chip in the rim, which seems to have been intentionally cut by a sharp object. So it matches then with the story uh, from that Islamic document describing a stone having been cut out of the rim of this sacred bowl. So so far, so good. It seems as if we can trace from the so-called Lord's Cup in Jerusalem to Doña Uraca's chalice in Spain. But what are the problems? Well, there are a number of problems. The earliest known reference to the existence of this cup only appears around the year 400. And so we cannot know, firstly, that it is authentically the cup that Jesus Christ used at the Last Supper. And in fact, this is arguably very unlikely. For one thing, it's finely made out of a fine material, dark-colored agate. That's one issue. Seems awfully luxurious for a bunch of, you know, illiterate peasant Jews having uh, a supper before one of them gets crucified. And the the authors have a way of dealing with that. They say, well, Christ also had well-to-do patrons, which is fair enough. But more importantly, The earliest reference to this sacred object is around the year 400, but it is not mentioned in the examination and collection of holy relics around Jerusalem, which was undertaken by St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, in the early 300s. So after Constantine embraces Christianity, he basically dispatches his mother Helena to go find sacred objects and texts around Jerusalem. And she did a fairly thorough job and she came up with all kinds of relics, most of which are probably spurious, such as the true cross. But there is no mention in any of those records from that time or later to any sacred cup or Lord's cup. So it seems likely that a you know, a, a, a nice pretty stone cup that someone had was then identified later as the supposed Lord's cup, which is the sort of thing that happens all the time, right? The the crown of thorns which is housed in Paris is almost surely not the crown of thorns that was supposedly placed placed on Christ's head. For one thing, it doesn't have any thorns. That would be one issue. So it mo- more likely is a spurious a relic that was elevated to that status at some point in late antiquity. We also further cannot know that the cup in Leon is the same one that was in the Holy Sepulchre at that earliest date, as of about 400. There's changing descriptions, changing locations, and all kinds of things can happen to a holy object, especially in a place like Jerusalem that's constantly being fought over and repeatedly sacked as it was, for instance, by the Persians before it was then conquered by the Muslims. So there was likely a lot of theft, looting, damage, and we really cannot know that the chalice in Spain is the same thing that is referred to in these documents about Jerusalem. Furthermore, If we suppose that the Uraca Chalice was known to be the Lord's Cup, the supposed cup of the Last Supper, if that was what made it so valuable as a diplomatic object, why is it that there is no reference to it as such in any Spanish records? No inscriptions, no allusions in any chronicles or letters, no oral tradition, no pattern of pilgrimage, there's just no indication at all that anybody in Christian Spain, in this Christian kingdom of Leon, regarded this chalice as anything other than a nice jeweled chalice. Now, the authors in Kings of the Grail make an argument based on a fresco painting on the ceiling of the vault of the collegiate church of San Isidoro, which contained these objects, including the chalice. And they point out that the fresco paintings, which are very rich and elaborate, include among them a scene of the Last Supper. And in this depiction of the Last Supper, one can see St. Marshall proffering a cup with some sort of liquid in it, in the general direction of Jesus Christ. So one could see this as, as a depiction of this supposed drinking cup. And it's basically a, a wide, large cup that one would hold with two hands. And it has a liquid in it. So, it, you know, very roughly, it seems to, to match what we would expect to see. It resembles the cup in the chalice of Doña Uraka. But as far as the color, it's more sort of blue-gray than brown, So there's a a sort of disjuncture here that I don't know what to make of, where the earliest references that describe the Lord's Cup in Jerusalem say it's onyx, which is a form of agate that generally is black or gray and very lustrous. That seems kind of similar to what we see on this fresco painting in León. It's a sort of dark bluish gray. And the actual cup in the chalice of Doña Uraca is brown it's more typical of what we think of as agate. It's this sort of cloudy mix of colors, mostly dark brown. So that doesn't seem to match so well. And then finally, even if we grant all of this, even if we say the chalice cup in Lyon is in fact the cup from the Last Supper, and that it has this actual chain of custody going all the way from the disciples of Christ to the Holy Sepulchre to Spain, nonetheless, That is not the Holy Grail. According to the earliest Grail legends recorded in French, right from the Comte del Graal up through the Vulgate cycle, the Grail is a grail, which is a bowl or platter for food. It is not a wine cup. And when it is connected to the Last Supper, it is said that it was used to consecrate the bread, not the wine. And it is always described outside of Wolfram von Eschenbach's version, which is very strange and different in all kinds of ways, if we look at those earliest descriptions, it is always described as gold, not stone. So at best, at best, even if we credit this entire argument and grant the authenticity of this chalice cup in Léon, these are two complementary objects, not the same object. And repeatedly in this book, the authors Torres and Ortega call the chalice in León the Holy Grail. But the sources that they're drawing on, both Christian and Islamic, do not call it the Holy Grail. They call it the Lord's cup, the Lord's chalice, or just the cup. But nonetheless, these modern authors identify the two and elide this distinction. They claim that this Lord's cup is the Grail from the legends. And they argue that the Grail stories emerged because when the Crusaders reached Jerusalem at the end of the 11th century, they didn't find the Lord's Cup there. It was absent. And so hence, they started telling these legendary stories about the Grail being someplace else like Britain. Now further, to try to somehow match up the history of this Lord's Cup with the legends of the Grail, They argue that there is a political parallel between the political history of León and the Fisher King's kingdom. So whereas I said the Fisher King's kingdom seems an awful lot like Flanders, they try to match it up with León in Spain. And they say that King Ferdinand's successor, King Alfonso of León, was wounded in the thigh and he had no heirs, he had no children to inherit his throne. And so in this way, he might be the inspiration for the Fisher King. Now, that's fair enough as far as it goes. Maybe there is some connection or inspiration there. But again, I would say this is a matter of the, the sources of the literature of the grail. It, is, it does not mean that the two objects are the same object. They also argue for a parallel in terms of the role of women. And they point out that there is a grail maiden who carries the grail and, and it's true in many versions of the story, the grail is physically associated with women. And they argue that this grail maiden who carries the grail is patterned on Doña Uraka, the keeper of the real grail. But in doing this, they conveniently ignore what the early French tales actually say of the object. Again, it carries bread, not wine. It is not a chalice. It is sometimes said to be like a chalice, but that again only underscores the fact that it isn't actually a chalice, it's a grail. And they consistently say that it's in Britain, not in Spain. And they just conveniently skip past when they try to draw connections between the two objects. They conveniently skip past all of those French romances and jump right ahead to Parts of All by Wolfram von Eschenbach. So for all these reasons, I would say they certainly have not demonstrated That the chalice in Leon is the Holy Grail—that is a completely ill-conceived idea, but nonetheless they do have a point when they point out the apparent connections with the story of Parzival by Wolfram von Eschenbach. And remember, in that German, that earliest German version of the story, which might date from about 1230, the Grail is described as being made of stone, and in fact, literally, it's called a stone and The story also gives elaborate backstory of Partzival's father, who is said to have traveled around the Islamic lands and Spain. At one point, he's said to be a cousin of, quote, the king of Spain. And furthermore, Eschenbach claims to have had a source. And this reference to his source has been much, much debated and dissected. And it's hard to say anything definitive about it. But Wolfram claims that his source for the true story of the Grail is a manuscript from Spain that was brought to him by a poet from Provence, whom he calls Quillot de Provence. And it's possible that this Quillot de Provence might have been a Provençal troubadour named Guillaume de Provence. But regardless whether or not Guillaume actually has anything to do with this, Wolfram says that his information is coming from a manuscript in Spain written by a heathen scholar, a non-Christian in a heathen tongue, presumably Arabic. So this brings forward a reasonable conjecture. And I would, based on the valid points that these scholars make, I would put forward a conjecture that our modern notion of the grail may in fact be influenced by Wolfram von Eschenbach's version and the other German tales of the Grail, which in turn are then influenced by ideas and stories from Spain, relating not to the Grail per se, but to the Lord's Cup, which was kept in León and which had certain similarities or connections to the Holy Grail. And this idea that ideas about the grail were partly inspired by stories and associations about the Lord's Cup is supported, for one thing, by the roots of the word grail, which as I said, was not a common word in Northern French, but was clearly derived from words like gradale and grasale, which were used in Catalonia and Southern France. So it's reasonable to think that there is a connection here and that these ideas may have influenced the entire mythology of the Grail, but especially Wolfram von Eschenbach's version. Now, what are the major caveats that might come to mind that maybe undermine this conjecture? One is that there is no reference in Wolfram's version of the story to the Last Supper or to a chalice of any sort. So the idea that his story is patterned on Dona Uraka's chalice or the Lord's cup, in that sense is weak. But it is noteworthy that Wolfram's purported source is Spanish and Arabic, and that possibly, and I, I would argue there is reason to suspect that certain ideas around the cup, this increasing growing idea that it is magical, that it is healing, that it is uh, that it extends life or restores youth, that these growing ideas around the cup, in fact, have Islamic roots, not Christian. And it appears in those sources that I read, those Islamic documents referring to the cup. It's the Islamic sources that first claim that the Lord's cup or chalice have these miraculous powers, not Christian sources. If we go back and look at these Earlier documents that these scholars unearthed, where Christian pilgrims say that they saw the Lord's Cup in Jerusalem, none of them say that the Lord's Cup had any particular miraculous or healing powers. The earliest claims of that source come from Muslims, and I think it is worth considering the possibility that it's in fact the Islamic Middle East that first tied these sorts of ideas of healing powers to this stone cup which then were also extended and transferred to this slightly different but related object, which is the Holy Grail in the Grail romances. And I would say that the the notion that we have today of the Holy Grail as a vessel out of which one drinks and it confers healing and immortality, that that in fact seems very close and related to older stories of the Fountain of Youth, the Waters of Life, and that idea of sort of life-giving, youth-restoring and life-giving waters appears, for one thing, in a very early example in the Alexander Romance, which is a narrative description, a legendary narrative of the conquests and adventures of Alexander the Great, which in part describes him journeying far to the east, finding an underground spring or river, and learning that this underground water or spring confers immortality. And Alexander in this version tries, well in in certain versions it varies, right? But Alexander tries to gain this life-sustaining power by eating a fish from the underground waterway, but the fish escapes him and swims away, which is, you might notice, incredibly reminiscent then of the story and imagery used in Robert de Boron's cycle about the Grail, where Petrus describes the sense of spiritual freedom that comes from the Grail as being like a fish that jumps out of a man's hand and swims away in the water. So I would say there are themes and images in the Alexander Romance that we know circulated widely in the Islamic and Arabic worlds that I think then may have influenced how people described the Holy Grail in Europe. Okay, so that is one, I think, worthwhile conjecture that one can draw from the facts and sources in this book, Kings of the Grail. Now, meanwhile, you probably know there have also been widely circulating and and constantly evolving popular theories in pulp literature about the Grail. A very common notion is that the Templars were somehow keepers or proprietors of the Grail, Victorian scholars in the 19th century did note the parallels and apparent references to the Templars in the Grail legends, but in doing so, they speculated that the legend, the story of the Grail, was somehow derived from the Templar doctrines and rituals, right? That this is, again, a matter of literary influence. They did not argue that the Templars actually possessed a literal, real Grail. Rather, that idea emerged in the 1960s and 70s, and I'll discuss that more later. You probably know some of the titles and stories that draw on that sort of theory. So the Templar connection has been noted before, all the way from the 19th century to today, but it's only in recent decades, in about the past 50 years, that that supposed connection has been reinterpreted. So not that the legend's have roots in the beliefs or teachings of the Templars, but that there was an actual literal physical grail and that the Templars had it and maybe in some way still do have it. So in this way, theories of literary or philosophical influence in recent years have been transmuted into theories of literal possession and often conspiracy theories. And they get pulled into the complex web of conspiracy mythology surrounding the Knights Templar. So all of these different theories, and I can't, I can't get into them all, all of them tend to move in a common direction. Namely, they tend to detach the grail from the Arthur mythos. And this is what they have in common with the more academic and scholarly theory that we see like in Kings of the Grail. Both of them have this similar mindset that they detach the grail from the Arthur mythos, which they see as fundamental, fundamentally historically untenable, and they then drop or ignore the claims that is cons- that are consistently made in the Arthur mythology, the claims that the Grail has vanished, right? That's inconvenient, right? If you're trying to launch a new quest for the Grail, you want to just ignore that. So in this way, they really are forced to jettison most of the actual Grail material from the Middle Ages because it links the Grail to the time and place of Arthur and because it says that the Grail is gone. So they have to selectively revise and remix references to the grail in order to make the grail, again, into an attainable literal object. So both lines of thought, whether we're talking about popular culture and movies like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, or theories about the real grail, both lines of thought have a lot of common ground. They tend to despiritualize and desacralize the grail. And I would argue that after 1980, these threads then combine again, and they combine to refigure the grail as a new symbol with a revised symbolic meaning. So what is that? What is the new kind of new moralized meaning of the grail that has crystallized after 1980? Well, firstly, there's a change in the understanding of the grail's powers. While it may have magical powers, those powers are Physical and bodily, not spiritual. And it, of course, culminates in the idea that the grail gives immortality, which is something that was, again, totally alien to the medieval romances. And then secondly, there's a change in the sort of moral message of the grail. It's more about the seductions of power, not the appeal of spiritual purification. So purification may be a goal, but it is attained by resisting seduction of the grail not pursuing it so just to clarify the first point there is this change in the depiction of the grail as an object in the mass media it changes into being definitively a cup or a chalice from which one drinks it gives bodily immortality and in this way it's very reminiscent of the alchemical idea of the elixir of life and also of tales of a spring or fountain of youth and all of these ideas, the notion that one can quest for an elixir of life or a philosopher's stone which confers immortality, or that there is a spring or fountain of youth, these sorts of stories are very popular in early modern times. right? And the golden age of alchemical experimentation is the 1600s, there are also references to the Fountain of Youth as being somehow the goal or object of explorers and conquistadores. You know, I talked about Ponce de Leon and how that idea was attached to him. So these sorts of ideas, that there is a sort of final secret that will defeat death and create immortality, that it is embodied by an object, these have been used as explanations, mythic explanations, to explain exploration, exploration, conquest, experimentation, and the roots of science, right? A lot of what we think of as science really grew out of alchemy. So in this way, you you might see it as kind of inevitable that the grail would be refigured and transformed into a vehicle of this kind of myth, of this sort of the great allure and the great danger of the quest for power and specifically for immortality. And so, as I mentioned before, the myth of the grail changes to become Faustian. It has been Faustianized, and in this way it is aligned with modern anxieties. Rather than elevation of the spirit, instead it represents worldly empowerment at the expense of the soul, and it appears not, it appeals not to spiritual aspiration, but to worldly ambition. And if Of course the subtext the sort of sinister subtext of it all is that if the body is immortalized then one's worldly power may be unlimited and this new ideal of the grail of course is canonized most of all in the movie indiana jones and the last crusade which was filmed in 1989 and this movie for one thing it completely severs the grail from its arthurian context And it even dismisses the Arthurian mythos, which is not real, whereas the Grail in the world of the film is real. So at one point, the hero, Indiana Jones, is speaking with a wealthy patron who clearly is a kind of slippery character. And the patron says, I want you to go look for the Holy Grail. And Indiana Jones's response is, the Arthur legend, I've heard this bedtime story before so and that's it that's the only mention of arthur or the matter of britain in the whole movie but meanwhile it presents the grail itself as real completely independent of the matter of britain and again it operates as a MacGuffin. it motivates and it sets in motion a plot that is really not about the grail at all but is about something else is about personal character and relationships So in this way, the Grail is transferred into a new moral parable, and you could say a new crusade. And in this instance, it's a crusade not against Islam, which again is not mentioned, but against Nazis, right? It's about the good, the spiritually good, well-intentioned hero striving to control the power of the Grail to keep it out of the hands of evil, which is the Nazis. And the suggestion of the possibility of the grail as a weapon is made explicit. It's never enacted in the movie, but it is referred to explicitly. So just in short, a lot of you probably know the plot. Uh, There's this supposed archaeologist who's really more of an antiquarian adventurer, Indiana Jones, and Indiana's father, Henry Jones Sr., has been obsessively searching for the holy grail. The father we see is distant and cold and exacting towards his son. Indiana Jones wants the approval of his father, which he has not attained, right? So you could say he doesn't realize yet that's his real quest. The father has sacrificed his personal relationship with his son in favor of the grail, right? So the two are set in opposition to one another. The father then goes missing and Indiana Jones sets out to pursue him, ostensibly for the sake of finding his father, not for the grail. But the the two goals are, you know, the boundary is blurry and ambiguous. He learns that his father has been taken captive by Nazis, and the Nazis want to obtain the grail in order to create an unkillable immortal army. And this is a very chilling nightmare scenario, of course. So this only heightens then the stakes of Indiana Jones's pursuit, both of his father and of the grail indiana jones reaches his father and they then race to get to the grail before their nazi rivals now if you don't want spoilers if you haven't seen this movie skip ahead a few minutes but i'm i'm going to discuss what the last scenes of the movie i think signify so indiana jones and his father henry succeed and in, in finding the grail but the grail has a dangerous seductive appeal and all of the characters involved want to possess it and keep it. So first the Nazis, then a Nazi trader who is working together with Indiana Jones tries to abscond with the grail. The cave in which it is kept begins to collapse. The grail is falling into a chasm in the floor of the cave. And then Indiana Jones himself finds himself controlled by the seductive appeal of the grail. So the real climax of the film is actually Indiana's own struggle when he is hanging on to the edge of this chasm, possibly you know, in danger of falling to his death, but he is still tempted and he tries to reach over to grab the grail. And ultimately, his triumph in the climax of the film is not attaining the grail, but giving it up. And at this point, his father, Henry, is holding on to his hand. And there has been a continuing plot line in the movie where the father is not respectful of Indiana. He calls him Junior rather than his preferred name. But at this moment, when Jones is reaching down, precariously trying to touch the Holy Grail, the father says to him very calmly, Indiana, let it go. And this is significant. For one thing for the use of the son's preferred name he's no longer calling him junior and the father is at this point choosing his relationship with his son a mature adult relationship with his son over the attainment of this prized object that he has been so obsessed with which is the holy grail and likewise indiana then has to go through the same choice himself to give up the grail in favor of affirming his relationship with his father so the message you can see is pretty clear that desire for power and immortality is destructive and it destroys the bonds that make mortal life meaningful right and the the story elevates love of family over power and in this way it's in, it's an anti faustian parable with the grail although it is regarded as sacred and it is revered. Nonetheless, the great power that the grail represents is the actual villain, right? Even more than the Nazis, you could say. The power of the grail is the real peril. So hence, there is this refiguration of the meaning of the grail. The grail represents conflict between worldly power and love. It celebrates humility, which is seen in the form of the grail as a simple cup so there's also the famous scene where different characters have to try to choose among an array of different chalices which one is the real holy grail and indiana jones has the wisdom to choose a simple almost crude ceramic cup rather than a jeweled gold chalice which is how the grail is described in the medieval romances So you can see here an interesting reversal of the medieval reading of the symbol. In the medieval romances, especially Percival, the grail quest represents the conflict between sensual indulgence and spiritual purity. The spiritual purity, which is attained in some versions by Percival and in some by Galahad, that spiritual purity then sanctifies and legitimizes power because both Percival and Galahad become kings, whether of the Fisher King's castle or of Ceres. Both of them enjoy a period of power, which they are prepared for by the spiritual quest for the grail. And it's a step towards total transcendence. And that, of course, as you see here in the modern myth of the grail, as exemplified in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it is almost completely reversed, where now the quest for the Holy Grail is the thing that competes with the appreciation of worldly personal bonds and mortal life. Now, in even more extreme cases, following after Indiana Jones, in even more extreme cases, the Grail completely changes into a sinister symbol representing the corruption of power, and, for instance, in the television show Merlin, which I've been watching, the television show, the British show Merlin, is a, another modern retelling of the Arthur mythos. And this is one that completely expurgates religion. There is no reference at all to Christianity or the church. The Holy Grail does appear, but it is used by Arthur's enemy Morgan in order to create an immortal army. So in this way, the danger, the threat that is only referred to in Indiana Jones is actually realized in Merlin. And in this version, it's not actually called the Holy Grail because <laughs> its its whole significance has changed so completely that you can't even call it that name anymore. Rather, it's simply called the Cup of Life, and the cup has a magical life-giving power that is not holy at all. It has completely lost any air of sanctity. And in this way, it is fully Faustian. And there's finally, there's a further sign that I think is interesting to look at from recent years that shows how the new secularized and Faustian view of the Holy Grail is now basically taken for granted and can be invoked as a kind of shorthand for the seductive and corrupting allure of power and that is in Jay-Z's album called Magna Carta Holy Grail. So Magna Carta Holy Grail was released in 2013 and it was the 12th studio album released by Jay-Z which I think is significant, you know, the, the number of the 12 disciples, the 12 parts of Idols of the King. It was, I think, Jay-Z understood it as kind of a completion and culmination of his work. And it, it was spoken of as a kind of culminating magnum opus. And in producing it, he brought in other major talents and stars, such as Frank Ocean and Beyoncé. The title, of course, invokes powerful phrases with overtones of solemnity and great moment connected to the middle ages right so so he's clearly trying to draw on sort of the legacy of the the greatest symbols of medieval western civilization and the whole album is is striking and dramatic and very unusual for hip hop the cover art shows marble statues of a man and a woman so he's clearly building up this sort of air of drama that seems like a disjuncture from the normal images of hip-hop. Originally, the album was just supposed to be titled Magna Carta, and so you could see it as sort of evoking a great document, right, that this is sort of his great document or great testament. But he ended up adding in the song Holy Grail, which he had written for for a different album where he was collaborating with Kanye West. But he liked it so much that he reappropriated the song, put it in as the beginning of this Magna Carta album, and renamed the album Magna Carta Holy Grail. And the song itself is extremely unusual. It's very slow-paced for a rap song. And it has alternating rapped verses and sung choruses. So the, the repeating chorus of the song is sung in a high, almost f- falsetto tone, in a sort of torch song style by Justin Timberlake. So in a lot of ways you can see it as kind of appropriating the, the, the sort of mood and style of, of Justin Timberlake's work into this hip-hop song. The topic, ostensibly the topic of the song, is fairly familiar for hip-hop. It's about wealth, fame, and success which is a theme that that Jay-Z clearly is very interested in. I think, you know, I don't know a lot about hip-hop, but it certainly seems as if out of recent stars, he himself is probably the most obsessed with the very idea of fame and celebrity itself. And the first verse has references woven into it to celebrities and stars such as Mike Tyson, Kurt Cobain, and MC Hammer, all of which were in some way destroyed by fame whether by the fear of being corrupted or the inability to keep public favor, the sort of unpredictability, the ups and downs of fame. And the, the first verse has, has these lines, you know, thick with these references. It says, caught up in all these lights and cameras, but look what that shit did to Hammer. God damn it, I like it. Bright lights is enticing, but look what it did to Tyson. All that money in one night, 30 mil for one fight. But soon as all that money blows, all the pigeons take flight. And then the second verse brings this theme down to his own personal level and he speaks more in first person and he raps, I got haters in the paper, photo shoots with paparazzi, can't even take my daughter for a walk, see them by the corner store, I feel like I'm cornered off, enough is enough, I'm calling this off. But then immediately where it seems as if the the story is just coming to a close, he then immediately disavows his own feelings and says, Who am I kidding though? And he scolds himself not to complain and says to himself, Why are you mad? Take the good with the bad. Don't throw that baby out with the bathwater. You're still alive. So there's this back and forth ambivalence in the verses themselves where he tries to maintain this kind of equipoise, this balance between attraction and revulsion. And then that theme is taken up in a transformed way and reflected in the chorus. So the chorus, as I said, is sung in a dramatically contrasting style by Justin Timberlake, and it is superficially a complaint to a fickle lover, which is a sort of typical topic that you might see in a Backstreet Boys song. You know, I'm so infatuated with you and this gives you this power over me, which you which you use in a fickle and inconstant way. So the chorus says, you'd take the clothes off my back and I'd let you. You'd steal the food right out my mouth and I'd watch you eat it. I still don't know why, why I love you so much. So whereas this begins on a sort of, you could say familiar note, it gradually becomes clear that this harsh lover is fame itself. It's a personification of fame. And it goes on to say, you curse my name in spite to put me to shame, hang my laundry in the streets, dirty or clean. So, you know, the image of dirty laundry being hung out is about personal affairs being exposed. So the chorus can be seen as the main speaker's own inner voice coming out, but in a more naive and childlike form. In the middle here, the chorus then shifts key, so it musically shifts key, and it then casts the lover not just as a fickle mistress, but as an object of mystery, as an enigma, timberlake starts to sing and baby it's amazing i'm in this maze with you i just can't crack your code one day you're screaming you love me loud the next day you're so cold so all through this chorus the connection to the holy grail in the title is unclear and implicit it's not totally explained the phrase crack your code might be a reference for one thing to the da vinci code which revolves around a theory about the holy grail but the chorus ultimately ends by trailing off with, with Timberlake singing, sipping from your cup till it runneth over. So this is clearly evoking the biblical image of my, my cup runneth over, representing good fortune and prosperity. But the background, if you look at the music video, when he is singing this, the background image shows a pyramid of champagne glasses, which are collapsing and shattering, which seems to represent the fragility of, of fame, fortune, and power, abundance, prosperity, which is now collapsing. And again, the sort of wide chalice-like shape of the champagne glasses is evocative of the holy grail. And finally, the final verse of the song heightens the tension with a sense of being consumed and drained, that fame ultimately is parasitic and it, it saps the life force. Jay-Z says, you get the air out my lungs whenever you need it, and you take the blade right out my heart just so you can watch me bleeding. I still don't know why, why I love you so much. So again here, the, that same phrasing then unites together the verse and the chorus. So the song clearly is significant. I mean, it, it, it was a big hit despite being so strange and so much more somber and dark. In mood. It was it was a big hit. It's seen as kind of a classic of, of hip-hop. And it's significant because Jay-Z, I think more than any other celebrity today, is self-conscious and reflective about the very nature of celebrity and about the sort of danger of his own fame. And hence he, uh, I think, intentionally brought in other famous artists to collaborate on this album, including Justin Timberlake, who was then right at the height of his fame, right? He was, he was the fashionable, iconic star of that moment in the early 2010s, which has now passed, right? It's almost, the song is almost prophetic that Timberlake was maybe already beginning his decline. I don't know why or how. I don't follow these things. Maybe he just decided to relax and take a break. But for whatever reason, he is really out of that spotlight that he was very much in in 2013. So in sum, the grail now can be casually evoked as a symbol of power and wealth, and specifically the allure of fame, which is how it is deployed here, as the allure of fame which seduces and poisons. And specifically, fame promises immortality. It promises immortality, but at the price of losing one's soul. So in this way, the song, I think, completes an almost total reversal, of the grail into a sinister Faustian symbol but also as a code right it still has this allure of mystery a code which if cracked offers access to this mysterious power okay so lastly I want to look at what you could say is sort of the final intellectual quest for the holy grail the different efforts and theories that people have put forward to try to expose the real hidden meaning of the Holy Grail, not just as an object, but as a symbol. And so there really, I would say, have been three basic streams of esoteric interpretation of the myth of the Holy Grail, where modern scholars and commentators have tried to uncover what it really represents. And among these three different streams, there is agreement that the Grail is a symbol that both stands in for and conceals some deeper truth. And most of them draw in some way upon the fact that there were secret words attached to the grail. And that's an element we see from the continuations of Chrétien de Troyes' story and from Robert de Boron, and which repeatedly shows up through all the different versions of the grail legend. There is some secret doctrine that is passed on along with the Grail, which these interpretations understand not simply as incantatory words or invocations, but as a hidden truth. And this has spurred on then the true modern quest for the Grail, which is the quest to unmask it and to expose the real meaning. And basically there have been three different arguments put forward about what this real meaning of the Grail is and what its true nature is. So just in brief, and I'll describe each one of these three. In brief, firstly, there is the notion of the Grail as a Christian symbol that stands in for and conceals a pagan reality. Then secondly, there is the notion of the Grail as a physical symbol that stands in for and conceals a spiritual truth. And then the third one is basically the reversal of that, the idea that the grail is a spiritual symbol that conceals an underlying physical truth. Okay, so what do each of these three schools of interpretation actually say? Well, as for the idea that it's a Christian symbol standing in for a pagan truth, this way of analyzing the grail legend emerged in the Victorian era and then really gained popularity in that moment of modernism in the 1910s and 20s. And this sort of key, you could say, to unlocking the truth of the grail derives largely from examination of the grail procession, right? These processions that parade certain sacred objects, the grail itself being one of them. The other very important one that always appears in all the medieval legends, which is the lance. Thirdly, the sword, which is an object that shows up that's more ambiguous in terms of its history and its nature and its role in the quest. So sometimes it's a sort of door prize handed to Percival. Sometimes it's something that has to be found and and sought after. Sometimes it's a broken sword that the knight has to mend. So it shows up in different ways and serves different narrative roles. But it clearly, it's a recurring important object along with the grail and the lance. And then finally, the silver dish, which is maybe even more ambiguous. It often appears, especially in the earliest versions of the legends, but sometimes not. And it's named differently. It might be a trencher or a salver, which are different names for a dish for holding meat. In some points, it's said to hold blood that drips from the lance. Its history is unclear. Sometimes it's not given any history or backstory at all. In one point in the Vulgate cycle, it's said to be the dish that held the Paschal lamb at the Last Supper. But in other points, this role is assigned to the Grail itself. So it seems as if this this silver dish is the most kind of fuzzy, but it's taken the most seriously in the continuations of the Conte del Graal. It is the object of a major question, what does it purpose does it serve? And at the end of the story, it's assumed up into heaven with the other holy objects. So it's unclear. Maybe this was part of the original story as conceived by Chrétien de Troyes, that it's a sacred object connected to the Last Supper. It also ascends to heaven. Or maybe other later writers learned about it from folklore. This is hard to say. Uh, We don't really know a lot of the sources of these stories and ideas. But it may be included, I would say, in the grail procession. If we think of the grail procession as incorporating or involving four basic objects, the grail, the lance, the sword, and the silver dish, it may be that it was included in order to balance out the picture. So if you think of those four, you have two phallic-shaped weapons, the lance and the sword, and then beside them, two yonic dishes or vessels, the grail and the silver dish. And as I said, there are some versions where the silver dish doesn't factor in at all, but there could be an explanation for that. It may be that sometimes it was named separately and from the grail and sometimes not because it is the paten, the wide flat platter that could be used as a lid on top of the grail. So sometimes in the procession they're carried separately. Sometimes the silver dish is not discussed. It's just said there's a paten on the grail. So this seems to clear certain things up, but it's still odd that no one explicitly explains that. There's no instance where a narrator in the grail legend says, well, there's, there's a grail and then there's this silver dish that's also sacred that sits on top of it. But regardless, it seems as if maybe we have a certain patter, pattern to work with here. What do we make of these four objects and why are they paraded together in this grail procession? Well, there are different explanations that come up and that diverge from one another. But basically, this has been taken as a kind of key to understanding where the story comes from and hence what it means that these, the procession with these four objects represents some kind of ancient ritual or myth. And this argument most famously was put forward by the scholar Jesse L. Weston, whose book, as I mentioned, her book was cited by T.S. Eliot as a source for his understanding of the Holy Grail. And Weston published a famous book in 1920 called From Ritual to Romance. And she says that the Grail procession seems to be a kind of ritual. And from this, she further elaborates by tracing out the sexual symbolism and she relates the sexual symbolism of the grail and the lance, which I also pointed out. She relates it to fertility rites, non-Christian or pre-Christian fertility rituals for the bringing of rain and the fertility of the land. She also connects this ritual procession to Cathar rites of initiation. And I have not really seen the full evidence or backing for this supposed connection, other than certain wall paintings that have been found in underground catacombs in France that have various objects on them that I can't really identify, but Weston argued that they corresponded to the four objects of the Grail Procession. Weston also points out the very strange and thought provoking connection between the objects of the Grail Procession and the tarot deck. So traditional tarot decks from the Middle Ages have four suits, right? They're they're similar or parallel to the four suits of playing cards. But in a tarot deck, those suits generally are wands, cups, swords, and pentacles, or some sort of uh, metallic object with a star figure. So there's this strange similarity where the wand is like the lance, the cup arguably is like the grail, the sword is the sword, and the pentacle corresponds in some way to the silver dish, and sometimes pentacles in tarot decks are seen as silver objects. So there is a strange similarity here, and it seems as if maybe there is some sort of complex of related ritual practices which involve sexual symbolism and also involve divination through the interpretation of objects right? Tarot are often used as, uh, as divinatory objects where the, the learned person must somehow uncover the symbolic and prophetic meanings of the objects as they appear, which seems strangely similar then to the grail procession where the hero, Percival, must ask and learn the symbolic meanings and purposes of the objects. So it certainly looks as if there's some connection here, and Jessie L. Weston and her supporters make a great deal about this. They theorize about surviving pagan fertility cults and their rituals and initiation and so on, but there are problems here, one of which is that tarot decks are only known to have existed from the later 1300s onward. Maybe they have deeper roots, but there's no evidence going back any earlier than that. In other words, the Grail story long predates the tarot deck. Is there there a connection? Maybe, but maybe it flows the other way. Maybe the tarot deck was in some way patterned on the images of the Grail legend. Furthermore, the tarot deck is not definitely known to have been used for divination until even later, in the 1700s. As far as we know, in the 13 and 1400s, they were just used for games, like playing cards. Also, the evidence, as I said, for Cathar, uh, connection to the Cathars and their initiations is very weak. For one thing, we don't know anything at all about supposed rites of initiation in the Cathar church other than the so-called kiss of peace, which doesn't involve any kind of physical objects. Right? The, the Cathars disavowed the material world. And this sort of speculation is really based on a lack of knowledge. There is no strong evidence hence for an initiatory cult around the objects of the Grail procession, but one could still argue for some sort of conceptual connection, some sort of literary influence running from ancient pre-Christian myths to the Grail romances. And this argument for literary influence, right, from mythic narratives to the Grail narrative, This line of argument was taken up, then, by Roger Sherman Loomis, an American scholar who published his major book called Celtic Myth and Arthurian Romance in 1927. And when it comes specifically, so this book examines the whole Arthur cycle, but specifically when it comes to the Grail legend, Loomis draws a connection to a series of Irish Celtic stories involving magical cauldrons. And these include a cauldron of rebirth, in which a, a dead warrior could be cast, and he'd be brought back to life. But especially, he sees a connection to a specific magical cauldron called Quari Ansic, or the Cauldron of Dagda, which, according to Irish legends, supplies endless food. You know, much like the Grail does. It feasts, and this cauldron belongs. It's it's connected to a god, Dagda. And Dagda is one of the so-called Tuatha de Danann, which is a sort of family or group of divine creatures of some sort, which are written of in books of Irish myth dating to the Middle Ages. So the Tuatha de Danann can be described as a semi-divine race related to the goddess Danu. They are usually presented as morally neutral, so you might, you might think of them, you know, using your D&D diagram as like lawful neutral. They are morally neutral, can do good or evil, and they are sometimes seen as sort of nature gods, personifying forces of nature, or in other versions as heroic kings or queens, dating back to the earliest legendary times of history. The Tuatha de Danann mainly live in the other world, the sort of fairy realm, and they can appear or disappear at will. So again, you can see here possible echoes in the Fisher King's palace, which seems to appear and vanish. Dagda is sort of the chief or royal god of this race. And his cauldron, the Cauldron of Dagda, is one of the four treasures of the Tuatha Dé Danann. So this group of divine beings, they possess four important sacred objects. Firstly, the Cauldron of Dagda, which I've described, Secondly, the Spear of Lug, which is considered to be invincible, a Sword of Light, which glows, and the Stone of Fall, which is a stone that cries out when it is sat on by the king who will rule over Ireland. So it certainly looks highly suggestive that the objects of the Grail procession, these four sacred objects, the Grail, the Lance, the Sword, and the Silver Dish, are may be borrowed from or are just thinly christianized right this is this is how loomis would interpret it thinly superficially christianized incarnations of these four objects of the tuata de danan the cauldron the spear the sword and the stone now there are problems with this interpretation some of which maybe are obvious and others less so An obvious one, of course, is the lack of match between the Silver Dish in the Grail Romances and the Stone of Fall in Irish mythology. The Stone, rather, in Irish mythology, the Stone seems to function in a way that is more similar to the Siege Perilous in the Arthur Cycle the chair at the round table that is reserved only for the grail hero, and that will kill anyone else who sits on it. So it seems to be a sort of magical seat that can identify a leader. So those things, that doesn't match with the silver dish, right? And neither do really any of the others. I mean, the sword in Irish mythology is glowing. In the grail myth, it's the grail that sometimes glows. Uh, It's a spear and a lance, you know, that's close. Uh, Cauldron, cauldron is different from a grail, right? A Cauldron is a cooking vessel and it's made of iron. The grail is not those things. So the parallels are fairly loose. And one could say, well, maybe this is all just coincidence that the, you know, you've got, you got some weapons, you got some vessels, whatever. It's not really that close a match. It's just a coincidence. Or maybe you could say that maybe the, the Celtic story provided an inspiration But the Grail story is different. And furthermore, another problem is that it's hard to say exactly how old those Celtic stories and legends are. They might not really be all that old. They are recorded in books and manuscripts from the 1400s. And it seems likely that they are older than that, that they go back to the pre-Christian age in Ireland, but we don't really know how far back. And it's completely possible that these legends sprang up and developed at about the same time as the Grail legend, and the influence could go either way. Now, lastly, the, the, the most important overriding objection that other scholars have made to this interpretation is that it fails to grapple with the Christian context themes and meanings of the grail story even if there is some sort of parallel or borrowing here the story of the grail is suffused with christian messages and beliefs now nonetheless there is you could say a sort of transitional mode of interpretation that some scholars have taken which is to on the one hand acknowledge the deep christian foundations of the grail story But look for some sort of heterodox meaning or heterodox message in this Christian story, which ties to some sort of unconventional stream of thought within the medieval church. One way is to link the stories to the Celtic church, which was a whole mode of Christianity that was common in the British Isles in the early Middle Ages, but then was gradually supplanted by Latin Roman Catholic Christianity. And there certainly do seem to be serious thematic connections here. So for one thing, the Celtic church was known to venerate all kinds of holy relics, as other Christians do. And specifically, they had hereditary keepers of relics. This seems to have been a common custom, that a family line would be designated to protect a certain holy relic, maybe with a connection to Christ, and the, the role would pass down as an inheritance. This is basically what we see happening with the Grail family. Also, the Celtic church was built to a great degree around hermits, sort of hermit monks who lived on their own, sometimes traveled around preaching the faith, and who in many ways were more powerful and more venerated than, say, bishops in the Latin church. And hermits factor in, in very important ways, in the Grail legend. They are really the fonts of truth and wisdom who reveal the mysteries to Percival to Gawain, and so on. And they even are, they form a kind of military force by their sacred power. They take control of Corbenic on behalf of Percival. Some then have speculated that maybe the Grail is essentially a Celtic Christian legend and that this may then be an explanation for the supposed secret words that are passed on along with the Grail. Uh, Maybe those secret words are actually an alternative wording for the rite of the Eucharistic Mass, which perhaps was preserved and passed on kind of underground in Britain or France or Flanders or wherever, and that that is what the grail legend is then referring to. There also is the possible connection to the Knights Templar, which is a a sticky issue. So the Knights Templar are known to have practiced rites of initiation, like most chivalric orders did. And these rites of initiation then, it seems, were massively blown up and distorted in rumors and in defamatory accusations. They were accused of heresy or of, of worshiping Satan, something like this. And when it comes to the Knights Templar, there are these sort of weird rumors and accusations about their practices, but they don't seem to relate or resemble in any way anything we see in the Grail legends. So the it, it seems to be more just a kind of conceptual connection that in the eyes of some writers like Wolfram von Eschenbach, the Grail keepers resemble the Knights Templar who, for their part, defend the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, or at least that was their supposed mission. So this way of interpreting the Grail as a Christian symbol standing in for a pagan reality It enjoyed a bit of popularity in the early 20th century, but it raised all kinds of criticisms and objections, and while it was, it maybe held sway for a time in the 1920s, it then was displaced by an alternative interpretation in the 1930s, and this was to view the grail as a tangible physical symbol that stands in for and conceals a spiritual truth. So this interpretation reasserts the essentially Christian meaning of the grail, and it came forth in the 1930s. It looked at the myth through a Christian lens in the context of changing Christian beliefs and practices. And as I said before, there seems to be some sort of connection between the grail myth and the dispute over the meaning of the Eucharist. So the Eucharist, or communion, or the Lord's Supper, it goes back certainly to biblical times but it has always had an ambiguous meaning. What exactly is the relationship between this meal of bread and wine and the actual body and blood of Christ? And in the Carolingian era, theologians in the monasteries, the schools of the Carolingian Empire started to put forward explanations of the Eucharist and they used the Latin terms veritas and figura in order to mediate the relationship between the Eucharist and Christ. So veritas, which can mean truth or reality or essence, and figura, appearance, right? So some said that the bread of the Eucharistic host is the veritas, while the flesh of Christ is the figura. So this might be a symbolic reading, right? The communion bread really truly is bread, but it appears it stands in for it symbolizes christ so you could take this as a symbolic reading while others using the same terms said the reverse they said the bread is the figura and the flesh is the veritas so it only appears to be ordinary bread but truly in essence it is christ so this could be taken as a literal reading of the sacrament this disagreement went unresolved for hundreds of years And the ambiguity continued right into the 11th century. And that's when this ambiguity started to come to a head. So in the 11th century, some church writers who who had been uh, versed in Greek, right, not just Latin, but Greek, which has a wider vocabulary with many words of very specific, fine-tuned meanings, they started to put forward the idea of transubstantiation using these sort of Greek metaphysics where they argued that the accidents and appearances of the bread and wine remain the same, but when they are consecrated, the substance actually changes and becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now, a prominent dissenter from this view was Berengar of Tours, a French theologian, who disagreed. He he disapproved of this doctrine of transubstantiation, saying that it was unbiblical, and he argued instead for a spiritual presence of Christ, Right, that the bread and wine were not literally Christ, but that there were that Christ was somehow spiritually infused into them. And his dissent caused a lot of debate, consternation. The doctrine of transubstantiation was becoming more widely accepted in the church. So he was called to a series of synods and, and disputations, and he eventually was forced to relent and defer in the year 1050. But even at that time, it's clear that not everyone totally accepted this view, and we don't know what a lot of the lay people were thinking. Now, at the same time that this doctrine of transubstantiation was more and more becoming the dogma of the church, there also were changes in the practice of how the Eucharist was shared. And the Mass was increasingly ceremonialized. More and more churches and chapels brought in jewels and bells and incense. They, brought, they began raising the host up to be displayed before the congregants at the moment when it was consecrated. And increasingly, the wine was reserved and kept to the priest alone. So the practice of sharing both the bread and the wine with all the worshipers was more and more rare, such that by about 1200, it was extremely rare and it was normal for only the priest to have the wine and for everyone else to share the bread. So there was ambiguity and shifting ideas about what then is more holy and what ought to be held back. And there was a greater sense that the, only the bread represented the communion, right? And that, that's how we talk about it now, right? Communion bread, that that is what is shared and that is what physically links together the worshipers, whereas the wine is more rarefied. So clearly the Grail legends must be connected in some way to these changing ideas and practices of the Eucharist. And another, a further indication that clearly there's a link here is that there was a common notion now among the church that the, the Mass was highly important, it should be highly formalized, ritualized, and that the deacon is an important element. The person who handles the bread and wine on behalf of the priest is very important, and that the deacon represents and stands in for Joseph of Arimathea, this soldier in Jerusalem who handled and prepared the body of Christ for burial. So the idea that the grail has been passed down from Christ to the fisher king by way of Joseph of Arimathea, it clearly links this uh, increasing ceremonialism around the mass to the grail story. But the question then is, what is the Grail legend saying? Is it trying to convey some comment about the nature of the Eucharist? Maybe it represents an alternative or dissenting view or a folk view in favor of the idea of the spiritual presence in the bread. It's remarkable that in the Grail legends, as far as I've seen, it's never said outright that the bread is the body of Christ. And instead, we're repeatedly told about the spiritual healing power, the joy that comes from proximity to the grail. So maybe it's expressing some sort of different view that the the Eucharist is essentially a spiritual event. But this is unclear, again, because the legends do include both physical and spiritual nourishment from the grail. Both body and spirit are fed by the grail in those stories. So there's ambiguity here, but nonetheless... An influential argument was put forward by the sort of lay scholar and student of Christian mysticism and student of Christian esotericism Arthur Edward Waite, who published a very fat book called The Holy Grail in 1937. And in this book Arthur Edward Waite debunks all sorts of prior Celtic theories. Right? He argues that the connections between the Celtic stories and the Grail legends are too slight There is no clear chronology showing the chain of influence from one to the other, but also further on the conceptual level, he rejects the assumption that the meaning of a story is reducible to its origins. This is, you could say, in, in my words, I would say this is a kind of genetic fallacy, that if you uncover some prior model or influence, that means that you have found the meaning of the story. Rather, the real meaning must be found in the structure, the themes, the mood of the story itself, and the way that the different elements are assembled and related to each other. And Arthur Edward Waite puts forward a broad critique of Loomis's archaeological approach. He argues that Loomis fails to see how elements fit into a story structure and its ideas. And other scholars simil- similarly have pointed out Loomis's sort of faulty reasoning when it comes to other Arthurian tales, like The Green Knight, where he argues that, well, the the story of The Green Knight actually is derived from this Irish legend about a monster who offers a beheading game, Uh, but in the Irish stories, this monster is black, and in obviously in the Arthurian romance, he's green, and Loomis argues, well, this was a mistranslation. There's some Irish word, gloss, that can mean black or gray, and someone mistranslated it as green, and hence the The knight in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is green. Well, you know, it's easy to see the flaw here. Green, obviously, is thematic and meaningful in the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it it served literary purposes. You can't reduce the meaning to just a, a mistranslation of some earlier source. So Arthur Edward Waite broadly rejects that whole mode of interpretation. And he argues that the Grail legend is Christian, it cannot be traced to some underlying pagan reality. And also he denies or ignores the significance of magic in the entire Grail story. He really goes to great lengths to try to elevate the quest of the Grail to a spiritual parable linked specifically to the Holy Spirit. The writing is very prolix, it's elaborate, it's repetitive, Uh, you know, so I probably won't read passages directly from it because it's very hard often even to puzzle out what he's saying. But clearly the last section of his book he puts forward with great passion this argument that the Grail story is a spiritual parable, that it is invented in order to express an alternative spirituality within the Western Church. So he argues there was a mood of disillusionment with the Vatican and with the worldliness of the Western Church in the Middle Ages. And he argues that even stories like the story of Prester John, which sometimes gets connected to the Grail, Prester John also can be seen as an expression of a longing for a purified and spiritualized church. And he argues that the writers of the romances propose certain facts about this grail that were clearly significant and sort of setting apart a distinctive higher spiritual realm within the church right not separate from it but within it and he says that they propose a super apostolical succession that carries a secret teaching right so the grail legends allege there is this grail family that has its own kind of apostolic connection back to christ but apart from the entire structure of the church they also have secret words and a secret teaching, so hence, Grail writers were various learned people around Europe who found a spiritual enlightenment through the Eucharist, and they invented the Grail as a way of representing this ineffable spiritual state. So essentially, he argues the the meditation on the Eucharist leads to a state of mystical union, right, which is something that all sorts of mystical writers speak about, this sort of inexpressible condition of the soul either merging into God or in the more orthodox Catholic form as directly beholding God. So they speak sometimes of the beatific vision, the sort of vision of perfection that comes from encountering God directly face-to-face, unmediated, and specifically Cistercians, in the Middle Ages often wrote about this beatific vision. And as we've seen, there is some sort of connection of the Cistercians to the Grail legend. And at least some of the romances were probably written, like Per were probably written by Cistercian monks. But Arthur Edward Waite is very careful to caution. This does not mean that the legend came from an institutional or organized church. Rather, it was just the expression of longing and of mystical experience among those who were spiritually enlightened. And this is the meaning of the phrase that mystics sometimes used of a church within the church, right? And he's very careful to say these people did not separate from the church and that this mystical, this sort of mystical realm does not stand against the church. It's just a sort of inner sanctum, a sort of further inner sanctum existing within the church so he sees this as a kind of symbiosis and he calls this sometimes the this this sort of longed-for alternative church he calls it the a church of the holy spirit and i think this is a very loaded phrase and he doesn't really work out the implications here there's a lot of ambiguity is this church of the holy spirit does it really exist uh, harmoniously within the church of christ Or are we talking about something radically different that works differently? Clearly, there's some sort of more direct or internal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, which, according to Christian teaching, the Holy Spirit is sort of the palpable presence of God as it exists and works in the world, right? And so Arthur Edward Waite seems to be suggesting the possibility of a a sort of different church, a church that works through this direct mystical encounter with God rather than working through grace through Christ. And this Church of the Holy Spirit, he argues, sort of exists spiritually and it presents, as he says, an altar behind the altar and a chalice behind the chalice, a sort of second, more immaterial church that one can see and uncover behind the material church. And in this way, the grail is sort of the encapsulation of this, of this type of Christianity, a physical object connected to the Eucharist that points the way at the same time that it hides some further spiritual church behind the visible church. Okay, and as others have pointed out, the weaknesses in this argument are several. For one thing, Waite totally maintains a separation of religion from magic, and in this way he has to totally ignore or cut out, just like the, the editors of, of Mort d'Arthur had to cut out the grail, Arthur Edward Waite has to cut out Merlin and all of these magical events and magical powers attributed to the grail. And so he relies on a very selective reading of some of the story elements as being literal, right? The grail is a real literal object. It really held the blood of Christ. But at the same time, others are merely metaphorical, right? The magical events and the, the physical healing, the magical production of food, all of these things have to then be cut out or interpreted as spiritual metaphors, right? But It's it's basically just a a programmatic reading, right? Selective reading, certain things he takes as literal and others as metaphorical. For example, maybe the Eucharistic host is also just a metaphor for something else, right? The same as the Fisher King and his kingdom are metaphors for a sort of spiritual realm. Maybe, Maybe the Eucharist also one could see as just a metaphor in the story, a symbol standing in for something else. But of course, Arthur Edward Waite is very committed to the essentially orthodox Christianity of the story. And so he chooses to see those things as real. Okay. Now, finally, in recent years, as I alluded to, there has been a sort of reversal from seeing the grail as a physical symbol for a spiritual reality to seeing it instead as a spiritual symbol standing in for a physical reality. So there have been these periodic searches for the real grail, most of them very, you know, half-baked. Various candidates have been put forward, sometimes involving the Templars as keepers of this supposed grail. But all of these different ideas have then been co-opted and transmuted into a new esoteric theory, that the grail is a symbol with a hidden meaning. And this is the bloodline theory, right? And it seems as if this perception of the grail the idea that the grail is either the vessel that begins a bloodline or that the grail is it's is the bloodline itself of jesus christ this was it seems first formulated as far as we know in 1967 where it is hinted at in a, a sort of typically uh, oblique way it's hinted at in a french book originally titled L'Or de Rennes, The Gold of Rennes, and then later also called Trésor Maudit, or Cursed Treasure. And this book was written, co-written by three French researchers, in scare quotes. And the book claims that there was a treasure of some sort, possibly originally belonging to the Templars, or maybe before them to the Visigoths, that was held at the castle at Rennes, or Rennes-le-Chateau, in southwestern France. And it claims that this treasure was protected by a hereditary group called the Priory of Sion. So this is a hereditary cultic group that maintains the Merovingian claim to the throne of France. So just... Just briefly, medieval France had three main royal dynasties. First, the Merovingians of Frankish extraction, then the Carolingians who displaced them, and then later the Capetians. So supposedly this Priory of Sion protects the descendants of the bloodline of the Merovingians and maintains that they are the legitimate rulers of France, which, you know, is really outlandish. But in France, it's not so strange because there are still Bonapartists in France. There are still Bourbonists. (laughs) You know, There are monarchists who want to see one or another dynasty brought back. So it's sort of playing on that theme. There's this Priory of Zion that maintains the Merovingian claim to the throne. And this French book was then picked up by a British BBC producer, who, and it then inspired a series of several BBC documentaries, sort of light pseudo-historical entertaining documentaries through the 1970s. And this BBC producer, Henry Lincoln, then adapted these sort of French theories and conjectures into a book in English called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was published in 1982. So Lincoln, he... He had read Lord de Rennes back in 1969, and then he co-wrote, along with a partner, this book elaborating on the story, and Holy Blood, Holy Grail further argues that the treasure in question is the Holy Grail, right? So this idea of the Holy Grail, the, the vessel, the cup with the blood of Christ, is then merged and identified with the treasure at Rennes, and then it further argues that the Grail is not a real object, It is rather the Merovingian bloodline, which originally at its root is traceable back to Jesus Christ. So it claims that Christ and Mary Magdalene married, they had children, and some of their descendants at some point went to Gaul. They then married into the French nobility, and their descendants then include the Merovingian kings. And in putting forward this theory, they seize as a crucial piece of evidence they seize upon a verbal double entendre. So if one looks back to Mort d'Arthur, I quoted this line before in my lectures about the Arthur mythos. In Mort d'Arthur, the ugly woman, who is a sort of prophetic messenger, confronts Percival and Gawain and tells them that they're going to seek something that they will not find. And that thing, she says, is sangreal, so sangreal, superficially, it seems to be a late Middle English transcription of a Norman French phrase meaning Holy Grail. So in Norman French, one might have said Saint Graal with two A's, and then that in in Mallory's language, it becomes sangreal. Now, it may be that Mallory was making here an intentional double entendre because if one takes that phrase and splits the G from the R. You then have sang real, which can again be taken in Norman French to mean royal blood. So maybe there's something here about some connection to royal blood. And basically this is the one piece of evidence that is then strung together with a whole lot of insinuation, speculation, and fabrication, a lot of just made-up pseudo-facts, that form the argument in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which says that the Holy Grail really is the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and that the Priory of Sion is its protector. And a crucial piece of evidence that they also point to in Holy Blood, Holy Grail is supposedly a pair of parchments, of documents on parchment, found in an old vault in Rennes, which attests to the origins of the Priory of Sion, as supposedly protectors of the Merovingian dynasty. And these are forgeries, right? They, they have been clearly debunked as not real medieval documents. And furthermore, one of the co-authors of Lord de Rennes, named Gérard de Sede, has admitted this, has agreed that these are forgeries and that one of his co-authors tricked him, just like he tricked millions of readers. But, you know, <laughs> when a story is too good, it kind of can't be debunked. And what is more, this, this book was a bestseller, and it, w- it, it attracted a great deal of attention and controversy through the 1980s. No historical scholars signed on to this theory. And the, basically, the theory faded out through the 1990s. But then it was taken up again and woven into a new fictional myth of the Grail, of course, by Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code, which was published in 2003 and then, again, was an an enormous bestseller and was made into a movie in 2006. And I won't go into all the gory details. Many people have read that book or seen the movie. I don't need to recap the whole thing here. But the plot line involves tracing, the the main heroes tracing and locating and contacting the Priory of Sion and discovering their secret. And that has given us sort of whole new second life to this theory of the grail as a symbol of a physical reality. Many people read the Da Vinci Code and it's a piece of fiction, it's a perfectly fine piece of fiction. I haven't read it. A lot of people like it, that's great. But clearly a lot of its appeal is sort of dressing up the the appearance of possible reality behind this theory and that in turn is very appealing I think because it can draw on the aura of mystery Surrounding the original grail myth, right? There are still these sort of associations of mystery and power in the image of the grail. So it can draw on that while at the same time rejecting the metaphysics and the theology supposedly connected to the grail. So, in this way, by, by entertaining this sort of crackpot theory, one can have your cake and eat it too. And the same thing occurs further, I think, in in other aspects of the Da Vinci Code, such as the involvement of the Gnostic Gospels. So Dan Brown, I think, you know, he's writing fiction, he can write whatever the heck he wants, but he misrepresents the nature of the Gnostic Gospels, claiming that the Gospels attest to some physical relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and hence to a more human and ordinary Jesus, as opposed to the dogmas of the Catholic Church, when in fact the opposite is true. The Gnostic Gospels do not show a more human Jesus, quite the opposite. They show a more purely spiritual Jesus. And some of them are even docetic in the sense that they argue that there was, that Jesus had no actual physical existence at all. He was merely a spiritual apparition. So you can see the Da Vinci Code in this way uniting together different strands and ideas that they that are then used to try to expose the catholic church right uh, so there's there's this sort of new quest right the new quest of the grail now is to sort of unmask and undermine the religious power of the catholic church and they draw on this Priory of Sion theory, the Holy Grail, and the Gnostic Gospels, but use them in a sort of selective or misleading way, only to say what we want, only to say things that are in line with kind of modern secular metaphysical sensibilities. Now, this theory of the Jesus bloodline, for all of its strengths and weaknesses, it has jumped out fiction again like the original grail jumped out of the arthur mythos it's jumped out of fiction and it's been taken up now by sort of modern revivalist groups groups like the masonic order of the knights templar the new celtic church there's a sort of revival celtic church now in the british isles and by jacobite clubs and associations and you can see this kind of new almost political deployment of the bloodline theory deployed in a 2004 book called Bloodline of the Holy Grail written by Lawrence Gardner who is a genealogist working for the European Council of Princes, this sort of social club of of members of royal families and claimants to royal thrones in Europe. And this book uses very dubious hermeneutic techniques in order to find hidden codes to support the bloodline theory, which strikes me as a kind of new revival really of like the late Victorian quest to find codes in the Bible, codes in Shakespeare. And the book argues that the royal descendants of the house of David and of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was also reportedly a descendant of David. So these descendants fled in the Jewish diaspora in the second century. And their bloodline can then be traced down to the Stuarts, who were the royal house of England and Scotland, who were overthrown by usurpers. So at the beginning of his book, uh, Lawrence Gardner argues for this continuing messianic bloodline, which has been suppressed or hidden or even stamped out, attempted to be stamped out by the church, the church with the capital C. And he says, quote, "...throughout the centuries, an ongoing church and governmental conspiracy has prevailed against the messianic inheritance. This heightened when imperial Rome diverted the course of Christianity to suit an alternative ideal and has continued to the present day." So the church here is presented as a kind of hijacking, a perversion of real Christianity, which then is represented by the Jesus bloodline and he goes on, quote, many apparently unconnected events of history have in fact been chapters of that same continuing suppression of the line. From the Jewish wars of the first century through to the 18th century American Revolution and beyond, the machinations have been perpetuated by English and European governments in collaboration with the Anglican and Roman Catholic churches. In their attempts to constrain the royal birthright of Judah, the high Christian movements have installed various figure regimes, including Britain's own house of Hanover, Saxe, Coburg, Goethe. So you see here this appeal, I think, to the instinct, the desire to find a hidden truth, a hidden meaning, not only in certain texts, but in history itself, to sort of look over the events of history as a sort of code with a hidden meaning that can, uh, that can be uncovered with the right key the key here being the Jesus bloodline, and furthermore, that sort of quest for the hidden truth of history is then yoked to a very old-fashioned political cause, the Jacobite cause of the House of Stuart against the Hanovers. and the way he words it here, you know, Hanover, Saxe-Coburg, Goethe, he's further linking it to the present Windsor royal family of Britain, so You know, I don't know if the queen sees this as as a real threat, but certainly that is how these sort of new antiquarian esoteric questers are trying to present this sort of hidden truth of the Jesus bloodline. So the new grail myth in this way is co-opted into royal restorationism. Okay, so now finally, what are final observations or points that I would make about the myth of the holy grail and its meanings so i've already pointed out some things like the very suggestive connections to islamic or middle eastern origins and to stories like the alexander romance well lastly i'll just put forward two other i think fairly simple points about the inherent meaning of the grail itself and about the wider meaning of the story, the legend surrounding the Holy Grail. So firstly, on the simple symbolic level, what does the Grail represent? It can be linked to very specific phenomena like the Eucharist. It can be linked to very abstract ideals of perfection. But more fundamentally, there's something very straightforward about the Holy Grail that I think has not been adequately discussed, which is that the Grail is fundamentally a vessel for the serving of food and especially for the sharing of food. It is an implement of feasting. It is big and wide and repeatedly in, in literary references to other objects, you know, other things called grazal, and in the grail legend itself, we see food being served, copious food being served out of the grail and shared among a gathering, a fellowship. So the grail is a dish big enough to serve more than one person. It is made for feasting and sharing. And it is associated, theologically it's associated with Passover, which is a shared ceremonial meal, with the Last Supper, and with the Eucharist, which also at its root is a shared meal of bread and wine among the fellowship. So hence the repeated emphasis of the grail's ability to feed many people it is reminiscent of miracles in the New Testament, like Christ's feeding of the multitude with bread and fish, right? And fish, again, appear as important symbols in the grail legend. And the association of the grail with constant references to tastes and smells, the the appealing taste of delicious food, the smell of spices. In all of these ways, I think the grail fairly simply represents the spiritual and social power of sharing food, or as it's sometimes put very pithily, breaking bread, right? Relationships, bonds, that can even be sacred bonds that are ritualized by the breaking and sharing of food, especially bread. And I think that a lot of what the grail legend is conveying is the sort of transformative power, how this can be transformative both on the individual level in the healing of people's souls, and also on the social level, the healing of a society, a country, a realm, through the sharing of food. And, you know, just again, to go back to these very suggestive and intriguing connections, uh, if we think back, according to the argument about the Chalice of Doña Uraca, which I think maybe did play some role in inspiring ideas and stories about the grail, How does it end up going from Jerusalem to Spain? It's because the Spanish-Islamic emirate of Dania gave food to the people of Jerusalem. And the, the gift then, the diplomatic gift of the cup, if we suppose that this account is accurate, is then a marker. It's a marker of gratitude for the sharing of food. And that's how it ended up going west into Europe. And I think that this... This is the real obvious basic theme that you have to see if you just ask this obvious basic question, the same question that Percival was supposed to ask. What is the grail and whom does it serve? Right? And the fundamental fact is it is a vehicle for the sharing of food. And I think that so much of the meaning and symbolism of the grail legend just goes back to that basic point Okay, now one can say, all right, well, all sorts of societies everywhere around the world, all through history, always have some sort of rituals of sharing food. Why is it that this particular story, with all of its strange spiritual and mysterious overtones, came up in this society at this time? Well, I talked about the evolving sort of meanings and practices of the Eucharist. There's also another connection, which scholars serious scholars as far as i can see have basically ignored which also is hiding in plain sight which these scholars have ignored but that ironically the sort of you know conspiracy theorists of holy blood holy grail do point out which is a very valid point which is the continuing connection to the crusades the patrons over and over again who who paid for and encouraged the telling of this legend were crusaders. It's likely that Robert de Boron, the author of the first trilogy cycle about the grail, he probably also went to the Holy Land with this crusade and for a time was in Cyprus. There are so many connections here. This is the moment. The moment when the grail myth exploded was the same moment when crusading really became an enduring and integrated aspect of Western Christian life. And more and more it was seen as kind of The best, highest, truest calling of a Christian knight was to go on crusade. And the Grail legend in this way, I think, can be seen to put a spiritual purpose onto martial life, right? To give an elevated spiritual meaning to the life of the knight, basically in the same way as crusading, just putting it into this symbolic narrative parable. So this story developed, as I said, when crusading was really becoming a regular, almost required activity of the Western upper class. And it was the time when there was a flood of holy relics coming into the West, not only from Palestine, but also from Constantinople after the Fourth Crusade in 1204, when the crusaders sacked Constantinople. They didn't get a lot of money out of that action but they got a lot of holy relics one of them eventually being the crown of thorns which was transferred from Constantinople to Paris and this I think almost surely inspired many of the ideas and stories around the holy grail right the fourth crusade happened basically right in the middle of the golden period of the grail romances so maybe it didn't inspire Chrétien de Troyes but it surely had an influence on the later grail romances in the 1210s 1220s like the vulgate cycle the grail can be seen to represent sort of the ultimate highest relic right unlike these real relics like the shroud of turin or the true cross the holy grail was imaginary and it symbolized the sort of ultimate attainment of spiritual satisfaction through chivalry and the veneration of relics and pilgrimage to relics so On the one hand, it's significant that the the Grail romances contain no specific explicit references to the Crusades, but there are all kinds of, you could say, veiled or indirect references to the Crusades. So in the story of the Grail and the Fisher King, it's explicitly said that the Grail and the Lance come from Jerusalem, right? And they're connected to the Last Supper. So this is an obvious tie to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem. The grail keepers are said to be descendants of David. So this is implied in some points and then it's made it explicit in the Vulgate cycle. This is the Davidic line tracing back again to the Holy Land. The sword that is given to Percival in the original Conte del Graal is said to have an Eastern look to it as if it came from Greece or Arabia. And the, Similar references like this happen then in other Grail romances too, where great objects, you know, cloth or, or weapons or, or vessels, are seen, are perceived as somehow Eastern and connected to the Eastern world. And if one looks then at the arc too of the Wasteland, of what happens with the Wasteland, how it is made physically dead because the leaders are spiritually dead, this is very closely reminiscent of the Holy Land and how it is discussed by the Old Testament prophets. There is this continuing connection between the moral and spiritual health of the people, or even specifically of the ruler, and the health and fertility of the land. And for example, if one looks in Isaiah chapter 30, the Isaiah the prophet puts forward this threat of drought and famine, but he promises that the land still can be healed. He exhorts the Israelites to cleanse themselves spiritually of idolatry and of sin, and he says, quote, then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also then send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. So this seems to almost prefigure then the story of the suffering and healing of the Fisher King's land. And in that passage where he says the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful, that word for food is sometimes translated in other translations as bread. You will have abundant bread. And again, the grail is a bread carrying dish. And the Fisher King specifically can be seen as very reminiscent of the penitent David, as seen in the Book of Kings and the Psalms, where he is a king who is worn down by his sin and is looking for purification and redemption. And then further specifically, if we look specifically at Wolfram's version in Parts of All, there are many references to the East. He claims that he has gotten his information from an Arabic source. There is a character who is a Saracen who shows up, who is Percival's half-brother, Pheraphees, he shows up and he bonds with Percival and then later converts and embraces Christianity. And the whole story of Percival and fairfees can be seen as very reminiscent of the story of Ishmael and Isaac, right? These two half-brothers who are set against one another, half-brothers with the same father, but different mothers who are set against one another. And Ishmael was traditionally understood as the ancestor of the Arabs, right? So there's this echo of isaac and ishmael then in the the wolfram story of percival and ferrephes but in in that version in the grail romance they make up and they marry into they marry together into the same family and they uh, embrace the same faith and finally and most importantly the the early grail stories say that the grail appeared it was attained and then later it disappeared from the earth. And there's this great wistfulness to the end of the story. And this, I think, can be seen to parallel the temporary gain and then loss of Jerusalem for the Crusaders, right? This sort of the site of, of the holiest, you know, the center of the world, the, the place where Jesus died and resurrected that's full of these holy relics. It was amazingly, miraculously attained by this kind of half-baked and very naive expedition in the 1090s then it was lost in 1187 so in other words the the beginning of the grail legend might be about 1180 so at that time the crusaders did still control jerusalem but just as the grail legend was taking off and being elaborated and and reworked in many versions that was the time when Jerusalem was lost. And I think that almost surely this sense of the holiest thing, the highest goal of of Christianity being gained but then lost again and that sense of sort of spiritual suffering and spiritual punishment almost surely inspired how people elaborated the grail legend. Now, why have these, I think, very strong connections between the grail legend and the Holy Land and between the quest for the Holy Grail and the Crusades, why has this been so ignored by scholars? Well, I suspect that it's because the Templar question has muddied the waters, right? The Regardless of whether there was any real grail or any actual connection between this purported grail and the Knights Templar, it it has sort of poisoned the well and made scholars want to distance themselves from that sort of stream of largely unfounded theories. But nonetheless, even if one rejects those theories, there clearly has to be some inspiration here. And for instance, the Grail mass scene where 12 knights are able to partake of a Eucharistic mass with the Grail at the culmination of the Vulgate cycle, it sounds extremely reminiscent to the institution of the crusading knightly orders. And furthermore, Galahad in the Vulgate cycle is understood as chaste and celibate, like the Templars and the Hospitallers, these actual crusading orders who took vows of chastity. So there's very, very heavy thematic connection here, linking, I think, the Grail story to the crusades and the crusaders there's a historical connection through these patrons of the grail story who were themselves crusaders and in some i think the the whole story can be seen as a kind of parable of the higher spiritual meaning or purpose behind the crusades in the eyes of those who supported them okay you know many people today will reject that idea and say the crusades are all about racism and religious hate and Okay, that's fine. We can talk about that another time. But regardless, I think the Grail story shows this higher spiritual meaning and sense of mission behind the Crusades in the eyes of the Crusaders themselves. And really, I think you have to say, in sum, that the Grail quest itself is a Crusade. As I said earlier, it's a sort of pilgrimage. It's a journey involving sacrifices and trials To approach a holy relic so it's a pilgrimage and it's a sacrificial pilgrimage done with arms right and that that is fundamentally what a crusade is is an armed pilgrimage unlike the normal pilgrimages where one has to go unarmed a crusade is an armed pilgrimage where one is willing to fight along the way in order to reach one's holy destination so the whole thing can be seen as a meditation on the ideal of the crusade as a spiritual quest. And it represents the means of spiritual elevation, not worldly enrichment or indulgence. It comes at a time, it emerged at a time when crusading was becoming a regular embedded feature of Western life. And although people today might entirely reject the whole idea of the Crusades, nonetheless, I think in this way, the Grail story could still be relevant to modern people as, as a model, not, not as a cautionary tale of this seduction of power, but rather as a tale, a parable of how to elevate one's pursuit of power spiritually and might be applied to the, the effort to elevate, to spiritualize, to moralize the modern pursuit of power through wealth or technology. And I think the Holy Grail, you know, it hasn't quite happened, but speculatively, the Holy Grail could transform again into a symbol of technology and the sort of increasingly mysterious powers of technology. But that is speculative. The point I want to make ultimately is that the Grail is a symbol of shared food, the power of the sharing of food, of eating together. And the quest to attain the Holy Grail is, I think, a parable, a symbol of the crusading quest. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this very long examination of the Holy Grail. Again, if you want to hear all of my lectures, including patron-only ones, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. Thank you.